An old book. A book about witchcraft. You're listening to the Whitewood Podcast, a show about mystery schools, the occult, and witchcraft. Would you like to have a look around? Why have you come to Whitewood? Well, because I'm interested in witchcraft. I'm your host, Nate. Come with us as we delve into the history, techniques, and backstories of these traditions and the people who practice them. Welcome back to the Whitewood Podcast. My name is Nate Driscoll. I'm your host. And this week, we're going to be talking about a topic that's very dear to my heart. And that is topic is Thelema. So, um, there's a couple things that I would like to say before we get too in-depth into this topic. First off, uh, is just about the show. So, this particular topic, there's a lot of information. And I would expect that this is a longer episode because of it. Now, because we're not constrained to time slots and those kind of things, and because the nature of a podcast allows you to pause it and come back to it later, uh, I don't really have a problem doing that and having a longer episode. But generally speaking, I, I try to record episodes straight through. Um, as much as physically possible. If I get interrupted, I might pause and come back to it. But I do try to kind of keep it natural. I don't want there to be a script. Uh, I don't want to be inauthentic in the way where I might pause it and say another sentence over and over and over again until it sounds just right. I don't want to be that. And uh, in an attempt to be genuine, I do try to just um, I. I record the episodes in one go as much as humanly possible. Now that that being said, I don't know how long this episode is going to be, but I imagine because while I don't script, I do try to keep uh, some notes next to me that just have some bullet points written on them so that I can talk authentically and naturally about those topics. Um, however, I know to hit some of these specific topics that I think are important uh, that make up a large issue. And in this particular case, there's a lot more bullet points than there usually are. <laughs> and uh, I imagine that if I talk about any of them in the length that I usually do, uh, that uh, it'll be a longer episode. Probably, I would assume, about twice as long as usual. Now, uh, I could split that into two. Generally, like we did with the uh, Lucid Dream episode, we, we probably would split it into two. But in this case... I really want there to be a source for uh, just a podcast that has some of this basic information about Thelema all in one episode kind of gathered together. And the reason for that is a lot of times online I will run into people and they will ask this question. We get a lot of people that say, hey, what is Thelema and where do I get started? Or uh, maybe some of them have been exposed to the very, very simple ideas, but they don't know what books to read. Maybe some of them um, have never been exposed to anything, but someone said, hey, go check this out. And so they find themselves asking that question a lot online. And I would really like there to be uh, some collected up set of information where someone can just be like, oh, you could check this out. He mentions a lot of different resources and kind of goes over the basics. So that uh, there's a, a decent starting point for people, you know. And it's just an option. I'm not saying that everyone has to start here. But it's, uh, it's an opportunity for me to share in something that I love but that I also felt um, it was complicated to get into those first couple steps. 
and maybe this will help someone else. That's kind of my hope, my goal with this. Um, so, so that's the first note is just the episode is going to probably be long and that's why, um, and what the intention of the episode is. The second thing is I feel that it's very, very important to talk about the separation that I have noticed in the Thelemic community. Um, there are what seem to be three or four major groups that exist in the Thelemic world. I'm not sure what caused the schism. I'm sure the internet, as much as it uh, brings people together, it also seems to create echo chambers and uh, schisms and divides between groups. So I would imagine that that's part of the source of the different communities. There is a an incredibly different culture when you experience Thelema in person than when you experience Thelema online. I often find myself in person surrounded by the people that are that I consider to be uh, my spiritual family. Um, I, I find myself having conversations with them frequently and every time that we get to this topic we kind of come to the same conclusion which is what the hell is going on with Thelema online? <laughs> when you experience other religions um, let's use Christianity as an example um, it, most of the people that are part of the online Christian community are also part of the in-person Christian community. And so while anonymity um, offers someone the ability to say something without as many of the repercussions, and so maybe they're a little bit more, I don't know, straightforward, something that I've noticed is that uh, it's the same group of ideas and the same group of people. Thelema, that doesn't seem to be the case. And I don't really know why. It's a very confusing experience, personally. But um, it sure seems to be that there's a whole bunch of people online that are talking about Thelema. And then there's a whole bunch of people in person that are talking about Thelema. And that the two groups are not communicating with each other. Something might be said about, I don't know, personal drama. People, I don't know, uh, dropping out of a social group and then going online and talking shit about it. It might be something like that. I'm not sure. It might just be that um, people discussing some of the newer uh, spiritual concepts can get really stuck into one specific idea in a, in a newer topic, like Thelema. Thelema is not a very old spirituality. Um, and so it's possible that maybe they latched really heavily onto one thing as opposed to all of the ideology as a whole. And um, I don't know what the cause is, but... There is a massive schism in between Thelema online and Thelema offline. Uh, one thing that we notice is that none of the people that I meet on a daily basis in person seem to be the same people that are online, and that the general actions of the groups online tend to be much more hmm, politically slanted. I've noticed that. Um, that being said, it's created some other schisms in that online community as well, mostly being that there are two major online communities and one of them tends to be very left-leaning uh, and one of them tends to be very right-leaning and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of overlap between those groups. They seem to be um, kind of angry at each other uh, as if their interpretation of Thelema is uh, correct. The other group's interpretation of Thelema is incorrect and they are the enemy. Um, 
seems to be some of the feelings that I get from watching those interactions. And from time to time, just trying to, uh, you know, communicate with people as much as possible. I have noticed those kinds of things. So, the reason why I bring that up is because it's possible in Thelema to be exposed to Thelema and not be exposed to the whole of Thelema. It's very possible to uh, find yourself in one online community or another online community. And this is, you know, technically true about um, more than just the online communities. This, There are schisms that exist in some of the fraternal organizations that, uh, that exist in the Thelemic world. Um, as you delve into this, you are going to find multiple communities that exist uh, for each fraternal order as they have schismed or uh, people have made illegitimate claims to those lineages and started their own organizations or all sorts of things. There's a, there's a million different reasons why it happens. But I guess the point is, just because you've interacted with some Thelemites, some group of Thelemites, be that online or in person, don't expect the entire Thelemic world to be represented in that one interaction. Because there's this old saying in Thelema that if you... If you ask a Thelemite, if you ask four Thelemites a question, that you'll get eight answers. Um, because the nature of Thelema is very free will based, and because of these schisms that I'm describing, um, it it is not uncommon to have people with more than one opinion that they're currently evaluating, or... Um, to express their free will in one direction or the other while others go a different direction. So you're, you're often going to find that uh, the Thelemic community as a whole <laughs> has a lot of variety of types of people, ideologies, and generally speaking, I would caution against taking anyone's word on how another group is. I would much much uh, much more prefer if people were to go get to know those other individuals instead. Because a lot of times there seems to be a lot of hate thrown at one group or hate thrown at another group. And, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're all united by this concept that is will and thelema and the, the law. And uh, it is uh, important, I think, for us to have our discussions, have our disagreements, but do so respectfully in a way where we can all be members of the same spiritual path. And so, uh, yeah, so I would encourage people to not take at face value when, when one person says, oh, that group is bad. I would at least, you know, suggest maybe not putting oneself in a dangerous situation, but always, you know, be open to the idea that some individuals might have a chip on their shoulder about others uh, because of these schisms that exist. And the most profound one that I've noticed is online versus offline. Um, so I think that's an important note. So what the heck is Thelema? Thelema is, to some, considered a religion. To others, it is a spirituality. To some, it is a uh, magical system. Um, it is... Uh, wrapped into a lot of different concepts. Um, there's also several organizations that make up the Thelemic world, and there's a whole bunch of people 
that are not a member of any of those organizations that are also Thelemites. So what does that mean? What is a Thelemite? Well, uh, anyone who accepts the law of Thelema uh, and it tries to incorporate that into their life would, would probably be considered by myself and definitely by most to be a Thelemite. Now, some uh, groups might say that you have to be, I don't know, initiated into this group or a member of my friend circle or whatever in order to uh, be considered a Thelemite. I would actually argue even farther away from that point to say that anyone who is living by the law of Thelema, regardless of whether they have been exposed to Thelema itself or if they came across those ideas more naturally and just those were conclusions that they decided in their own life, I would argue that there are Thelemites who do not know they are Thelemites. There are people who uh, are already living the law of Thelema that uh, are not aware that they're living the law of Thelema. So a Thelemite is someone who lives the law of Thelema. Thelema is a religion, spirituality, and philosophy, and a generally interesting set of things. Um, Thelema was founded, and most of it was written by a man named Aleister Crowley, or he went by Aleister Crowley. Um, he shows up a lot in pop culture. In some previous episodes, we have talked a little bit about him in the past, but um, to kind of give you an idea, he was a the type of individual where he was caught up in a lot of different things. He did everything from mountaineering. At one point, he wrote a cookbook. Uh, he wrote some poetry, some short stories, some uh, some magical books, some books that go over technique. Those techniques range a very wide spectrum as well. Some of them are down more of the Eastern thought. Uh, some of them are down more of the Western thought. Um, and in the process of all of this spiritual exploration, um, he founded a religion called Thelema. So Thelemites, in general, uh, consider Aleister Crowley to be a prophet of the new Aeon. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means in a second. So we've said Thelema a lot, and we've said uh, law. We've mentioned the law a lot. What does that mean? So the law of Thelema is a phrase that Thelemites believe encapsulates things like morality um, and your general right as an individual uh, as well as some of the theme of the spiritual conquest of this particular period of time. And the phrase is, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Um, that, that law is further expounded as love is the law, love under will. So if you've ever heard someone say, do what thou wilt, or do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, love is the law, love under will, all of those things are what we're talking about. When we're talking about the law. Um, so when we talk about um, uh, will and thelema, generally we're talking about an individual's free will. Um, but also the, the concept is tied heavily into kind of like divine will. So the word thelema is Greek. It's the Greek word for will. And it shows up in a biblical context quite a bit. 
So it shows up in the Bible. Um, New Testament was uh, often in Greek, sometimes in Latin, uh, in its early forms. And when the word Thelema shows up in the Greek Bible, it's usually talking in the context of like, God's will be done, the devil's will on earth, those kind of things. It's this idea of this uh, this will, this uh, plan, this decision that is being um, um, transmuted from a holy source or some divine source, whether that's a light divine source like God or that's the dark divine source like the devil. Uh, will is, you know, Thelema is the word for will when you say things like God's will be done. Um, in Thelema, we believe that you have a will as well and that uh, just like you could say God's will be done, you could say your will be done. And uh, we encourage people to find their will and to experiment with willpower and to uh, express their will in any way that does not directly interfere with the will of others. So the idea being that will itself is kind of sacred, uh, divine in a way, and that um, your will goes up until the point where you start stepping on someone else's will. Your will is absolute until you start violating some other will. So, for example, you have the will to, I don't know, you have the will to move as you will on the earth until you start pushing someone else out of the way and then, you know, you're kind of being a jackass and you're uh, violating their right to stand where they were standing. So it's a very free will based system. And a lot of it is about experimenting with that idea, building um, the strength to, number one, recognize one's will, and number two, to do it unapologetically. Um, generally speaking, we have this concept in Thelema called true will that is separated from the idea of the desires of the ego. So when we say true will, we're, we're talking more about like a divine purpose. We're talking more of like an internal calling, you know, a true path that you define for yourself. We're not talking about saying, I want to eat this entire bag of Cheetos wants and wills are different. Um, it kind of goes back to that concept of, you know, like God's will be done. Your will being done is not necessarily something that is uh, tied into, uh, I want it, but I want it. It's not about that. It's about the true will, the personal expression of the spiritual truth that is the individual. Um, generally speaking, this whole idea of true will and discovering it and being able to uh, accomplish it is uh, tied into this concept in Thelema called the great work. The great work is the process of finding your true will and then doing your true will. And Thelema definitely doesn't believe that everyone has exactly the same true will. It, um, it's is a system that allows for individualism, for individuals to disagree, to have uh, different things that they're uh, contributing to the human race. Um, so a lot of the system is kind of um, 
celebrating humanity in a lot of ways. So, for example, um, it might be someone's will to express themselves authentically in a way which... Um, well, when, once I heard someone pose the question of whether Thelema allows homosexuality, and the answer starts off a little shocking but leads to an interesting thought, is that it does not allow homosexuality. It demands that an individual be true to themselves. And if they are uh, homosexual, then it demands that they are homosexual. It doesn't allow them. We have no uh, permissions to divvy out and give permission slips to people. That uh, What Thelema does is it demands that an individual express their true will authentically and genuinely. It doesn't have permission slips to hand out. And it does demand that you uh, do your will. Now, uh, for others, that might be um, something completely different. You know, for uh, individuals who are, you know, straight, you are demand it is demanded that you are straight. Uh, for individuals who are more fluid, it is demanded that they are fluid. So that might be an example of how Thelema treats the concept of free will and the concept of will with the individuals that their expression um, of, of themselves in an authentic manner is uh, absolute. And in some semblance, the expression of the individual is considered to be sacred in Thelema. Um, there's some concepts with the great work uh, that uh, go into what we call the Holy Guardian Angel, which is to some... This is where it's going to get kind of difficult as we talk about Thelema. Um, I can't interpret everything for you. And it's really up to the individual to interpret things for themselves because it is a will-based system. And some people interpret the Holy Guardian Angel to be literal. And some people interpret the Holy Guardian Angel to be figurative and descriptive of some process. And some interpret... Uh, the Holy Guardian Angel to be a philosophical concept, and, and so on and so on. And there's a million different ways that an individual can interpret this. Uh, but generally, the Holy Guardian Angel is this concept of um, some source of the, uh, the, the knowledge of one's will. So for some, that might be the belief that there is a literal physical angel that you know is there with you. Who is, uh, whose intention is to help you to find your will and then express it. Um, for others, it is more of a philosophical concept of a, a goal or uh, maybe a symbolic uh, experience. And that's really up to you to determine how where you fall on the spectrum. And that kind of goes back to what I was just saying about Thelemites and receiving eight answers <laughs> for four questions. Or four Thelemites, one question, eight answers. Um, you're going to find that people disagree. And uh, in person, I have found that people are very uh, polite. And it's interesting to talk to them about their different opinions and their different ideas and interpretations. But it gives you kind of an idea of will, uh, what the word thelema means, the separation between true will versus desire, um, the concept of the holy guardian angel, and what the great work, what that phrase, the great work, means. So um, some of the basic philosophy that gets tied into this is this 
law of liberty on a spiritual level that it's not necessarily just that you um, are free to seek God but how you seek God or if you seek God well, whatever your will is however you seek that divine thing in your life uh, or lack thereof is really up to the individual's expression and so uh, one of the central documents that uh, declares man's rights to experience spirituality as he will is a document called Liber Oz. So uh, Liber Oz several times quotes what is called the Book of the Law. We'll talk about what the Book of the Law is in a second. Uh, it's kind of like the Thelemic, for lack of a better term, it's kind of like the Thelemic Bible. It exists as a... Um, a central text, spiritual text. Uh, there are many, many, many Thelemic texts um, all over the place, but the Book of the Law is kind of the, the central one. So a lot of times it'll quote the Book of the Law, but then it itself has a list of man's rights. So I'm going to read that for you now. It's, uh, uh, first is some quotations. It says, The Law of the Strong... This is our law and the joy of the world. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Thou hast no right but to do thy will. Do that and no other shall say nay. Every man and every woman is a star. There is no God but man. Man has, his, has the right to live by his own law, to live in the way that he wills to do, to work as he will, to play as he will, to rest as he will, to die when and how he will. Man has the right to eat what he will, to drink what he will, to dwell where he will, to move as he will upon the face of the earth. Man has the right to think what he will, to speak what he will, to write what he will, to draw, paint, carve, etch, mold, build as he will, to dress as he will. Man has the right to love as he will. Take your fill and will of love as ye will, when, where, and with whom ye will. Man has the right to kill those who would thwart these rights. The slaves shall serve. Love is the law. Love under will. So that's the document known as Liberals, and it's a declaration of man's rights. Uh, these apply both in a spiritual sense and a literal sense. We believe that uh, mankind has all of those rights inherently in the individual. They're not granted from some outside source. Um, a couple of key points to that. I know there has been some contention with outsiders on the phrase, the slaves shall serve. Generally speaking, uh, it's difficult for me to interpret anything that's taken from the Book of the Law or anything from a Thelemic document because your interpretations are more important than my interpretations in your life, and I would strongly encourage you to make your own interpretations. But the general interpretation of the line, the slaves shall serve, is more a reference of those who do not liberate themselves shall be slaves to their own egoic desires, their own lesser, uh, untrue um, expression of will so um, it's generally not considered to be a literal group of slaves or anything like that um, in fact all of the other things within the document would suggest that man has the right to live by his own law and that would include not being a slave under someone else's law um, that's also where it kind of ties in the concept of man has the right to kill those who would thwart these rights this is another point of contention that I've heard. Some people are afraid of any law of liberty that includes violence. I would argue that all laws of liberty include violence. 
Um, not necessarily to say that we should go out and seek violence or that we have the right to seek violence, but when an individual attempts to thwart your rights, you have the right to resist. So, for example, if uh, you are living in a way in which you are a free, liberated individual and someone comes along and says, now you're going to plow my fields, you are my slave, and uh, I'm taking over your government and you're going to... Uh, you're going to be my slave. You have the spiritual right, according to the law of Thelema, to resist, even to the means of killing those who would thwart your rights. So I think it's an important line to draw, but we definitely don't suggest violence because that would thwart the other individual's rights to live as he will, you know, to, to uh, die when and how he will. Those kinds of things are definitely outlined within the document. So the idea is that the law of Thelema applies unilaterally across all people. So um, every man, woman, uh, if uh, every individual, I guess is really what I'm trying to say. Every individual has uh, these rights inherently within them, and that um, and that that includes the other people that are around you. And that's a weird line uh, for some where if we have such a free will based system um, I, I know a lot of people worry that it's very egotistical I would argue that it's actually very respectful towards others in that uh, y you're celebrating other people's rights as much as you're celebrating your own rights and so um, like for example Let's use um, some other moral concepts to kind of unpackage the law of Thelema. I, I personally feel that uh, all moral quandaries can be answered with the law of Thelema. But you have to look at it from both sides. So, for example, man has the right to love as he will. Take your fill and will of love as you will, when, where, and with whom you will. This, of course, would be under the limitation that that other individual wants to make love with you, right? Because they also have the right to take their fill and will of love as you will, as they will. Um, so you can't go around violating other people's wills. So, for example, if you were to try to, I don't know, run around and say, oh, that lady over there. It is my will to go have sex with her. And she says, it's not my will. Uh, you know, man has the right to kill those who support those rights. So I would be very careful to not overstep and try to violate someone else's will. Uh, because that's as important as your own will. So that would be kind of an example of how you can unpackage a, a regular uh, moral issue. And uh, understand the law of Thelema and how it applies. I would also say that uh, do without wilt is a fantastic core concept, but that it is very important to add the second set where it says uh, love is the will, or love is the law, love under will. So that is to say that obviously uh, love under will, love is an important thing. Love is the law, right? It is part of the law of Thelema. But Love is under will, so you wouldn't um, sacrifice your own safety, your own will, 
in the name of love. That uh, you should act with love and respect towards those around you whenever you have the opportunity to. That is the law of Thelema as well. But that when you find yourself in the paradoxical situations that you must pick one or the other, that will is the more important of the two. And it kind of comes back to that idea of you have the right to resist those who would thwart your rights. Um, often in Thelema, you will find that we expand this a lot, that um, while it lists, while the document Libras lists off a whole bunch of ideas, we don't necessarily think that that's an exhaustive list. We think that it's painting a pretty clear picture as to what the law of Thelema is. But, uh, for example, if I were having a conversation and somebody said, um, I don't know, let's say they're riding a bicycle or a car or something, and it's a different color than mine. And they go, How, what do you think about the color of my car? And I could say, you know, man has, has the right to color his car as he will. Um, so you'll find that this is not an exhaustive list. This is more trying to paint the picture of what the law of Philema truly is, which is that you have inherent rights. And that these apply in a spiritual sense, and this is really important. If they apply in a spiritual sense, it means that there is no one defined way to experience whatever the goal of spirituality is. However you define that goal of spirituality, or even, even the goal of spirituality, um, it's not my business to tell you what you should do with your spirituality or how you should go about achieving that. And so, for example, if, if one Thelemite decides to get really, really heavy into Eastern traditions and yogic practices and, and they're seeking, um, you know, whatever it is that you're seeking down that road, um, that's okay. And if somebody wants to go very heavily down some other route, like more of a Western ideology, that's okay too. And they might be headed in completely different directions, and that's perfectly acceptable in Thelema because, you know, it's not up to me to define your spirituality. Um, so you'll find that Thelemites are a very diverse bunch. <laughs> There's a lot of different kinds of us, and that's awesome. We celebrate and are excited about that idea. So that's some of the basic philosophy. We also mentioned the Book of the Law. What is that? So there is a central text that was... Uh, Alistair Crowley It was the one who penned it. However, Crowley claims that this came from an outside source, an outside divine source, that um, after a specific event, um, he received the Book of the Law from an outside intelligence, um, that um, the, the Book of the Law is similar to how Scripture, in like, I don't know, Judaic texts, is considered to be Oh, actually, you know, I'm going to use Islam for this example because it's much more accurate. Uh, similar to how the Quran is believed to be uh, literally received by Muhammad and transcribed, Thalmites believe the Book of the Law to be literally received and transcribed by Crowley, that he was not the author, that the author, like the Quran, the author would be Allah uh, in in Thelema, um, I believe it to be some of these outside intelligences that um, were waiting and preparing for a new age of humanity. 
and that there's some cycles that were involved that uh, there are different stages that humanity had to go through to get to this one and that there's probably some stages after this one as well and we're more declaring uh, this particular stage and that's kind of what the book of the law is is it's a received document um, through Alistair Crowley's writing to um, to define and enable this particular aeon of concepts in human growth. So, uh, in the book, there are several chapters. It's three chapters long. We usually keep, uh, I would say, most copies. Uh, there are a couple out there, like there's an app that is out there. It's free. Go check it out if you want to, and you don't want to you know, buy a copy. Or if you want, like, certain websites that are not philemic websites, and they just you know, are trying to collect up everything spiritual. And that's awesome that there's spiritual libraries like that. I think it's great. Um, but they might not be aware in those situations that there's a tradition with the Book of the Law that we always put the original manuscript in the back. So uh, you will find this online, not to be the case sometimes. But a lot of times, if you get a copy of the Book of the Law, it's going to have the Book of the Law in there twice. Once is going to be transcribed, written down, you know, printed in clear text. And then the second time that it's in there is like uh, shrunken down pictures, depending on how big your book is, I suppose it might be full-size pictures. But it's uh, pictures of the original manuscript to show the specific handwriting and style and words that were used in order to do this. And one of the reasons that we write the Book of the Law that way is, as, as I'm sure many people are aware, uh, books that were... Um, of a spiritual nature and distributed before the invention of the printing press, uh, often because of the process of copying a book from hand uh, and writing it down by hand, um, often have changes, um, edits, those kind of things. And over periods of time, those edits can really stack up. And so the idea is that at all times, the Book of the Law is presented with the original manuscript so that you can see that that is you know, kind of word for word what the uh, original concept was. Um, the first chapter is written from one entity's perspective. The second chapter is written from a second entity's perspective. And the third is from a third entity's perspective. And those three entities are uh, Nuit, Hadit, and Rahorquit, which are uh, modern-day... Um, versions, more modern versions of some old Egyptian deity concepts. Uh, so Nuit being, uh, I believe she's actually pronounced Nuit in uh, old Egyptian, is a kind of star goddess thing. It's the night sky, the brilliance of, you know, the dark night sky with all the stars in it, bending over the horizon. Um, to the sky, right? Um, Hadith being uh, Had, which is the uh, winged solar disk uh, that you see in Egyptian pictures. And then uh, the final one, Rahurquit, which is a modern-day interpretation of um, Rahurquiti, which is an Egyptian deity uh, that was an amalgamation deity of Ra. Horus and Quiti. Um, 
that's where we get Rahakuit. Um, each chapter was received on a specific day. We'll talk about that. But chapter one was received in one day. Chapter two was in the second day. And chapter three was received in the third day. And um, they have slightly different themes to them. And much like any spiritual text, um, there's a lot of layers to and a lot of symbolism that's tied into these ideas. Um, it's not a very long read. You can definitely do it in one sitting. I find that it is for myself, and everybody has different limits on how much they can read before they start to get fatigued. I find that it is just past my comfort level, uh, and I find myself... Uh, reading like a chapter a day if I'm gonna if I'm gonna sit down and really try to crunch it I'll read like a chapter a day or maybe I'll read a chapter or go do something else come back read another chapter um, but you can definitely do it in a sitting if you intend to maybe it's the first time you've ever read it and you just want to know more um, it's a highly symbolic book and so um, there are some beliefs uh, associated with the book of the law where most Thelemites, especially those in the organized side, um, some of the organized groups, are going to stray away from the idea of interpreting the book for you. It's kind of up to you to interpret it. And you do have resources. You have the entire Thelemic library of all the different writings and stuff like that to kind of find some of those symbols out there. Uh, and then Crowley also wrote some commentaries on the Book of the Law, and the commentaries can assist in... Um, the interpretation so uh, kind of finding the actual meaning so uh, if you if it be your will to explore see here we are <laughs> talking about will <laughs> didn't take long if it be your will to uh, explore Thelema uh, it's a pretty good place to start to just read the holy text and kind of understand some of the theme and some of the ideas and understand that it is really really dense material and layers of symbols on top of layers of symbols on top of layers of symbols. And it's very, very common that the first time you read it, you're like, holy crap, I got like four words of that, and I don't really know everything that it just said. That's okay. I still am finding new things every time that I go dig through it. And I think that's kind of what makes it uh, what we call a living document, is that as I change and go through phases of my life, uh, points of the book are more obvious to me that uh, maybe I wasn't aware of before the last time I read it. And so I do uh, try to read it pretty frequently. And I would suggest that practice to those who find it is their will to uh, experiment with that. Um, some of those symbols and how they tie in, and not just within the Book of the Law, but within Thelema as a whole, uh, it is very, very centric around some of the symbolism that was used by the Golden Dawn. Um, Alistair Crowley was a member of the Golden Dawn before founding Thelema and a lot of his writings both pre um, I mean as a prophet we, we study his entire set of writings not just the writing uh, of the book of the law and, and after um, so I would say his writings pre and post the event of declaring the law of Thelema um both heavily circulate around Golden Dawn-esque symbols as well as some other symbols you know it's not it's not tied into any one concept for sure but one of the central ones that the Golden Dawn was using is the Kabbalah 
And you can find more out about the Kabbalah in a book called 777 and Other Kabbalistic Writings by Aleister Crowley. It was published by Israel Regarding and was supposedly a collection of papers, writings, and ideas that uh, Crowley had written down um, from memory. <laughs> the, 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 the myth, and I'm not sure how true this is, but the myth is that uh, Crowley wrote most of this in a night or two from memory, just straight up was taking notes on some Golden Dawn material, and that's where it had come from. Um, having looked through a lot of old Golden Dawn material and looked through 777, I would not be surprised if that was true. It would not blow my mind. Uh, also, many others who knew Crowley made comments on how uh, intelligent he was and how good his memory was. There's an old uh, story of him playing multiple games of chess while blindfolded, where he was able to keep the image of, I think it was three, two, and he would beat both players that he was playing against, or all three players that he was playing against, just remembering where the pieces were moved and being told, okay, I moved my knight to this position. Um, who knows if that's allegorical or not, but it goes to kind of illustrate the idea that uh, the guy probably had some pretty good visualization and memory techniques that he was utilizing, and it would not blow my mind if, um, number one, the source was some of the Golden Dawn material, and number two, that he had written some of that from memory, or a great deal of it from memory at least, and then maybe expanded on those ideas later. I don't know. But uh, that's kind of what the book 777 is, is it talks about um, Kabbalistic, the Kabbalistic system of symbolism that, uh, that heavily gets used in Thelemic concepts. Um, Thelemites have some holidays, just like any other religion has its holidays. I work for a very forward-thinking company, and I don't know if there's enough Thelemites that anyone has asked yet but I've always wondered if they would give me Thelemic holidays off so that I could celebrate them as I see fit. I don't know. I don't know. I know that if I were Jewish and I went to the business and I said, hey, I'd like to take off you know, my Jewish holidays, they would do so. I know that generally speaking, myself living in the United States, um, there's not a lot of resistance towards people taking off uh, Christian holidays uh, to some extent. depends on who you work for, of course. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the response would be. I, I do genuinely wonder. Maybe one of these days I will try it. And and if I find out that I do get those holidays off, I'll tell you so that uh, we can all celebrate how awesome the idea of getting your holidays off. But um, at this time, I'm not aware of many businesses that offer those days off. Although I do know some Thelemic business owners, and I can only imagine that if those business owners had Thelemic uh, employees that they would, in fact, honor those holidays. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what, what would happen there. I would imagine that at least those individuals get those days off. So here's some of the holidays. Um, the Supreme Ritual. So we call them the feasts. They're the, the sacred feasts or the holy feasts, the holy days of Thelema. Um, basically, there's a specific section of uh, several different things. It's in the Book of the Law, which is generally... Um, not you're not like really allowed to change it but it's also written in some other places uh, like uh, mass has a reference to the holy days the deacon at one point during mass will declare the holy days um, he doesn't give the dates off though he just kind of like lists off which which ones there are so one of them is the supreme ritual so it's a, a feast for the supreme ritual 
and a feast for the equinox of the gods. The supreme ritual and the equinox of the gods happen pretty much right after each other or on the same day. It depends. So the equinox of the gods is the Lemic New Year. It's the um, vernal equinox. It's... Uh, it's it's the beginning of we have our own calendar system we'll get into that in a moment it's the beginning of our calendar just like you know new year's is for the current calendar what do they call that the, it's not the julian calendar it's based on the julian calendar but it has leap years added because the romans hadn't figured out i don't remember what we call our new one it's basically the julian calendar if you take out the leap years um obviously i'm, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of like the uh the jewish calendars we have our own basically. Uh, Equinox of the Gods is the starting point of that. It's um, it's the spring equinox. And the spring equinox sometimes comes on March 20th and sometimes comes on March 21st. And the reason for that is basically that, um, number one, our calendar systems of timekeeping are not perfect. And so as we move around the solar system, there's a perfect spot that can be considered an absolutely true equinox where the equator is pointed directly at the sun and we are on one side of the solar system when we're on the other side of the solar system it's the fall equinox but when we're on the spring equinox um, there's like a physical position of that and so like all the equinoxes and solstices uh, there's a variation between days it's generally the 20th and also sometimes the 21st of march that's your equinox of the gods um, the supreme ritual is a celebration of the invocation that led to the events uh, of which the book of the law was received so just before the equinox of the gods is the supreme ritual that's march 20th always because that's a celebration of a specific day of the year and then the equinox can happen either on that same day or the day after they're always very, very close holidays. Um, the supreme ritual is basically that uh, Alistair Crowley and um, Rose, his wife at the time, um, he had done a specific invocation in order to uh, show her something. And as I understand, that was not it was not the intention to um, to invoke the Thelemic current, but because the door got opened and things were waiting because this was the plan for humanity as soon as the door opened that there was some things communicated so we received the book of the law because of that invocation so the supreme ritual is this celebration of the ritual that led to thelema the equinox of the gods is the beginning of the new year and the spring uh, equinox uh, then comes the three days of the writing of the book of the law that is April 8th, 9th, and 10th. There's a, a feast on each day. Depending on how active your Thelemic community is, you might find that they just kind of turn that into one day. Generally, if you're in a larger area where you have a lot more Thelemites and a lot more going on, um, you'll find the Thelemic communities will have three separate days of feasts, and you'll all get together, and the tradition is generally that you, number one, hold a party, you know, a feast, but then number two, that you read the chapter of the Book of the Law that was written on that day. And then if you were to condense that all into one day, you just read the entire Book of the Law together as a group. And maybe you, you know, go back and forth and each take a line or a chapter or something. That's 
generally what happens on the three days of the writing of the Book of the Law. There's a holiday for the Prophet and his Bride, which is in August. We celebrate the solstices. Oh, the Prophet and his Bride is um, to celebrate Alistair Crowley's marriage to uh, Rose. Her, It's there. Um, while they did end up not staying together, she is still considered to be a character of an of Thelemic importance for the role that she played in the foundation of Thelema. So um, I don't know that she, I, I assume that she did not at the end of her life consider herself to be a Thelemite. I, I don't know. Um, but the celebration is for their, their marriage, which, you know, that particular couple was where this um, Thelemic current came from. Uh, we celebrate the solstices and the equinoxes, just like some other magical traditions. Um, they're a little different in Thelema. I have noticed that if there is one set of holidays that doesn't get celebrated nearly enough, in my opinion, it is the solstices and equinox. But it's basically um, just like with other magical traditions. It would be celebrations of the changing of the times, the changing of the seasons from one season to the next. So those are um, those. We have what they call a feast for fire and a feast for water. So a feast for fire would be celebrated for uh, young men as they transition through puberty um, in order to uh, celebrate their becoming of a man. And a feast for water is the same concept, but for women. So um, as children who grew up in Thelemic households enter puberty, there's a celebratory feast uh, when they become an adult, that transition. Um, and then the last Thelemic holiday is the Feast for Death. Um, they call it a Greater Feast for Death. Um, it is December 1st, it's when Crowley passed away. There are also feasts of death for the individual who like an individual so like if i died there would be like a funeral rite and a feast um involved but um when you generally when you refer to the thelemic holiday that is a greater feast for death you are celebrating crowley passing on to the next life um or dissipating or whatever your interpretation is um you're celebrating crowley passing away um so that's the thelemic holidays and the different feasts and kind of gives you an idea of like some of the some of the kinds of things that we celebrate as a community. Most of these, which you're going to find if you get close enough to like a Thelemic body, um, which is a group of Thelemites, um, you will uh, find that, you know, we throw a party and get together and, you know, have some food and shoot the shit and try to have one or two things to do that day that are kind of Thelemic in nature. But really it's, you know, an infor it's a feast. It's just, you know, it's a party. Come, come celebrate celebrate these different phases and some of them have traditions um like uh december 1st day crowley died is sometimes referred to as crowleymas and there can be some like christmasy themed stuff going on i know my local body has a tradition of uh doing like a, a secret santa kind of thing so you might see those kind of things but they're definitely not like in the canonical thelemic everyone does this kind of list uh, you'll also see that there are more canonical things like on the three days of the writing of the Book of the Law, reading the, the chapter that was written that day. Um, 
yeah, so it's a wide variety of what we end up doing. Um, Thalina, as I mentioned, has a calendar. And the calendar is just called the Thalemic calendar. It starts on the vernal equinox, which is the spring equinox, between March 20th and March 21st, depending on the position of the planet, the position of the sun. And uh, it starts in the year 1904. The Book of the Law was written in 1904 by Aleister Crowley, or received in 1904 by Aleister Crowley. Um, so the calendar starts on that date because that's the declaration of what we call the Aeon, which is this particular phase in uh, humanity. Um, it's measured in what's called a docusade. It is a set of 22 years. There's Kabbalistic reasons for that. The Kabbalist, uh, the Kabbalistic tree of life has 22 paths on it, each corresponding to uh, a lot of symbolism, each one of them. Um, so that corresponds to things like, uh, and this is what 777 is about, so if you want more information about that, you can go read through 777. Um, so um, each of those 22 paths on the tree of life uh, can correspond to everything from the Greek alphabet to the Hebrew alphabet to numbers to um, different tarot cards to planetary energies, elemental energies, those kind of things. And so um, 22 is kind of a thelemically significant number and uh, basically you have the starting point 1904 spring equinox of 1904 that's where the thelemic thing starts that's where our calendar starts then the next year would be year one the next year would be year two and you get all the way up to 22 and then it would start over it goes back to year one but now there's like a, a bigger number so that would be year one one and then one two and then one three uh, and so currently we are in the year, it's, it's called, uh, when it's referred to, usually it's Anno. So it's Anno, uh, what are we in? 5-8. So five docusades have passed, and we are in the eighth year of this current docusade. Or four have passed in their totality. You get what I'm saying? We're in the fifth one now. Um, some people associate some of that with... Um, a not divinatory but a prophetic layer where uh, some of the symbolism of what happens that particular year could be summed up in the the docusay that you're in and whatever the, the larger year that you're in the pattern of all 22 if that makes sense so you might say that like this particular Dokusade is um, five, five relating to, you know, you could break the symbolism of five and break that down, and then to say this particular year is the process of eight in the process of five, and you can find quite a bit of information about how to break those kind of things down and look at the symbologies uh, in 777. There's a lot of other writings as well that you're going to find. Um, when I when I recorded this, uh, oh, and then, um, so that's the year. That's how you calculate the year in the Thalemic year. Um, there's also the day gets calculated. And the day is calculated with the sun and the moon in uh, astrological terms. And you can go farther uh, than just that. You could also say, like, the day of the week. Each day of the week has a planetary association. 
and uh, each hour of the day has a specific association as well. So you can you can definitely drill it down, but the year is done off the Dokusades, starting at the 1904, writing the Book of the Law, and then the day is an interpretation of the physical position of the Earth um, in relation to astrology. So, uh, for example, right now, as I wrote this, the sun is in uh, 16 degrees Taurus, and the moon when I, the moon moves much faster, I looked this up hours ago, it's probably not 21 degrees in Cancer anymore, it's probably still in Cancer. So you would say that the Thalamic time is uh, sun in 16 degrees Taurus, moon in 21 degrees Cancer. Uh, you could say uh, which day of the week it is, it's Friday. Um, so Friday would be what, Venus energy, I think? And then uh, the dodecasate is 5-8. So that's, that's kind of a, a quick breakdown of the Thalamic calendar. Basically, we, we keep track of time in astrological correspondences. So um, we count our years based off of the event that starts on the spring equinox. And then we keep track of uh, the horoscopes, where the sun is positioned and the moon is positioned in order to now, this is a really interesting way to keep time because it's not dependent on how long a year is. And this is a kind of a weird concept for some people. They talk about like time is relative and time and space are the same thing. Um, if the Earth were hit by an asteroid or some other event that was large enough to push the, the Earth physically closer or farther from the sun, and now there were more or less days or hours in the year, the Thalamic calendar would not need to be adjusted. All of the other calendars would have to be adjusted because we're not necessarily measuring how many days have passed. We're measuring where is the sun at in the backdrop of the astrological signs? Where is the moon at? We're really saying the geoposition, the, or the, you know, the position of this object around this other object. Uh, is is much more what we're saying. So if you moved us, the sun would still have a 16 and a 15 and a 14 degree in the 360 degrees of the sky. Um, wouldn't wouldn't make that much of a difference. How long it took for those objects to move would change, of course. But uh, you could still you could still without adjusting, you could measure in that calendar. So it's just an interesting fact, but. Uh, astrologically, that's how we keep track of things. Um, so let's see. So that kind of gives you an idea of Thalamic calendars, the Thalamic holidays, and what those are all about. And uh, when you hear somebody talk about astrological correspondences, a lot of times we'll write them like um, in our journals and those kind of things, or maybe we write a document. We'll uh, very often put astrological correspondences in the document. So we'll say like, hey, there's an official notice and it's going out on this day and we know that everybody that's reading it is a Thelemite, so we're going to put, and we will put like the Julian calendar date. We will put just like the the um, the regular date. It's, uh, you know, May 6th or whatever. Um, but we'll also put the Thelemic calendar date either in, um, either it in quotations or parentheses or the other date in parentheses. Very often they're both there. So it gives you kind of an idea of the Thalamic holidays and calendar. Um, it is common in Thalema 
to see somebody say the words 93 or to see written down 93 or 93-93 or 93 divided by 93. Those kind of things. You'll see that a lot. Um, what is the significance of 93? It, it's uh, kind of shorthand. It's geometric shorthand for several different concepts. <laughs> the first being thelema. Um, if you take the word thelema and you break it down, what's called geometrically, geometria, that is to uh, some ancient languages, Hebrew, Greek, there are some other ones, um, had numbers associated with the different letters. And then that way, you could break down a word into a number. So basically, if we were to completely bastardize the system and just uh, for the sake of, this is not how it would work in English, but let's say we were just trying to explain kind of what I meant. Uh, you might say that A is one and B is two and C is three. And then you could take like all the different numbers, kind of like numerology, and add them together. And then the idea with geometry is that words that have similar values are related. And this is a tradition that comes from uh, Jewish mysticism. And uh, they would in interpret religious text. They still do interpret religious text in this way. So you might find uh, two verses. Um, or you might find two words. And you might break them down into geometry and find that they equal the same. And you, you might go back and reread that same verse and impose the other word in there. So... Um, it depends, you know, but uh, that's kind of the idea of what geometry is. You're breaking things down using a, a specific old Jewish mystic system. You're breaking things down for the numerical value. And the word thalema broken down as to a numerical value is 93. Um, the word agape, which is the Greek word for love. There were many versions of the word love that were in uh, Greek. I don't remember how many. I want to say six. You can correct me if I'm wrong. You can reach me at nate at whitewoodpodcast.com. If I'm wrong, let me know. I think there's six. <laughs> we could totally Google it, but I'm not going to. <laughs> um, one of them was agape. And agape is this concept of like unconditional love. It's uh, You had uh, philia, which is like uh, sexual love. It's like desire, you know? You had like... Um, there's a concept that's like brotherly love, like how you might feel about your brother, or, you know? There's um, like the Christ-like love, the agape. It's this concept of like unconditional uh, love. And agape also equals 93. And so when, when Thelemites uh, point out 93, sometimes what they're doing is they're breaking down the law of Thelema into a number. And so it can be kind of shorthand for the Law of Thelema, because the Law of Thelema has two separate verses. The first being, do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. Remember, we talked about will being Thelema, right? And then, so do what thou will being the focus point. And then love is the law, love under will. So in the second part, love being the focal point of that sentence. And so Thelema and Agape being the two focal points of those different parts of the law, both of them equaling 93, and therefore being connected in that geometric way. So a lot of times you'll see uh, individuals who have like tattoos that say 93, 
Uh, it's really common to see in shorthand because there is this tradition with Thelemites where as they introduce to each other, as they speak to each other, sometimes in person, much more often in written text, it is common to uh, open up your letters, for example, if you're writing like a, a formal body of Thelema. Like let's say you're writing like specifically the church. You might say, uh, hello so-and-so, do what thou wilt, should be the whole of the law. And then you write your letter here. And then you say, love is the law, love under will, and then you sign your name. So there's like, um, it's common for, for the law to be used to be professed and declared to others as uh, encouragement and challenge for them to find their will and act in accordance with the law. Um, so using 93 is kind of a shorthand. So when I'm like texting somebody, you know, and it's like, I don't want to type this out right now, or it's like Facebook. And so it doesn't fucking matter. And I'm not, you know, trying to be formal because I'm writing a formal um, organization. Uh, maybe I'm not as worried about that because it's my buddy Dave and I don't care. You know, uh, I might just say 93 he might go, oh, 93. And then I'd be like, hey, man, what's up? I uh, I was driving by and I, I wondered if you wanted to go see a movie. Yeah, totally. All right, I'll see you in a bit, 93. You know, there might be like some of that uh, where it's used kind of as a greeting. So you'll see that uh, a lot. And that's what its purpose is. It's it's the numerical value of both agape and thelema. And because those are the central points of the, the two different sentences that make up the law, it is uh, considered to be a point of interest. So um, we briefly touched on this a minute ago with the concept of the Aeon, but let's dive in and really try to unpackage that. So the idea with an Aeon is basically, an Aeon is a very, very large section of time. Uh, as Thelemites, we believe that the whole of human history is divided up into these large sections of time and that each of them carries a certain theme, um, both with the stage that humanity is at, the foundations of society during those stages, as well as, probably most importantly, the uh, expression of the divine and the magical formula of the time period. So that's like the, um, the uh, magical expression of some sacred pattern slash it's complicated we're, we're going to do an entire episode on magical formula for sure um but as far as the expression of the divine that is to say that uh um basically each one of these phases each one of these sections um how mankind is worshiping what they are worshiping what kind of uh, form that takes uh, comes in different, uh, in each one of these stages comes in different forms. And so, to put simply, um, we think we've entered the very, very beginning of the third stage. So the very first stage is this, to, to simplify and almost over-bastardize the, uh, the system. The first stage is the stage of the mother, the second stage is the stage of the father, and the third stage is the stage of the child. Now, um, life kind of goes through a similar stage. Um, 
where first you're in the womb, then you're in the household, then you are kicked out in society, and hopefully you are uh, making a way for yourself. Um, in religion, uh, these phases uh, present themselves in, uh, in symbolic ways where during the early stages of humanity, um, there was a focus on feminine trait uh, deity like uh, fertility goddesses, for example. Um, many, many early religions focus on those kind of things. And the morality and social structure is of kind of the uh, tribal phase where uh, it's very family-oriented family in the in the in the sense of almost that mother-like womb for society that you know you have small groups of people all kind of united as a as members of a family um, over time the focus of religion shifts and you see somewhere in like the classical era and in the medieval time period you see um, a more patriarchal focused society and so uh, the expression of the divine changes and becomes much more obviously it depends on which culture you're looking at of course but um, it, it becomes much more focused on a singular father figure type religion where you have like uh, Christianity Judaism um, many 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 religions are uh, focusing on like a uh, monotheistic fatherhood figure. Um, society itself starts to shift during that period, and you see uh, big daddy government become like, uh, and, and the church being this authority figure um, where there's the organization of society. So in the uh, womb stages, in the, in the mother stage, um, it's very family-based, small groups of people-based, whereas eventually the society is boss if that makes sense there's that authority figure um, and much of the morality gets tied into these kinds of things as well during that phase um, in the early religious phases you see a little bit more focus on like um, emotion and um, uh, empathy based uh, morality where um, forms of worship might include music or art or like, you know, drumming around a fire and uh, trance states, which are, you know, a feeling based operation and those kind of things. So um, whereas it, when you enter into the second phase of religion, uh, the second aeon, you see much more focus on like written word, contemplation of the written word and... Um, a lined out set of rules and concepts if that kind of makes sense some of the separation between the first and the second and how one is a little bit more um, of a female-centric concept the second is more of a male-centric concept and in both situations there's a uh, parent like uh, authority figure yeah, both in society itself but also in religion and the concept of the divine being tied into you know like a female centric or a mother earth concept or those kind of things and then transitioning into father 
depending on how you want to view it, maybe Heavenly Father or, you know, then that's even like a, like a phrase that gets used a lot in uh, some of the religions that were started in that second aeon. Uh, you know, Heavenly Father being this uh, concept of um, uh, a father figure uh, being the expression of the divine. And so um, that first aeon is referred to in Thelema as the Aeon of Isis. Isis being the Egyptian goddess, of course, not anything tied to uh, modern political events or any of those kind of things, but there is a uh, goddess named Isis in uh, the Egyptian pantheon. Um, and during the second Aeon, we call that Aeon the Aeon of Osiris. Um, Osiris is Isis's uh, husband in Egyptian mythology. And uh, we believe that you've entered a, a third phase, which is why in the 21st century we see, um, and not to say that it's specifically started in the 21st century, but that, uh, that it started with the announcing of the Book of the Law in 1904. And uh, since then, um, ideologies have shifted. Um, the perception of the individual starts to become more prevalent in the central focus of society. Uh, we also believe that morality is starting to shift in the way that we perceive both the divine and also um, just general perception of reality, general perception of morality as well. So um, that's why you see a lot of like um, movements nowadays that have to do with the individual and the individual's expression and the individual's right to that expression, um, where, you know, in, in more of like a age of Osiris, an Aeon of Osiris um, era, there wasn't like a whole lot of conversation about the rights of the individual over the rights of society. There, You know, there, there wasn't like a whole lot of like, oh, well, um, you should be able to marry who you please, or um, you should be able to, um, I don't know, have marriages across racial or gender lines shouldn't matter or um, uh, self-identifying in certain ways. There wasn't a lot of conversation about those kind of things in the previous Aeon. And now that seems to be the focus of um, humanity's exploration in morality is uh, a lot more individual based. Um, I think a lot of that is also uh, prevalent in the culture that is the internet. Uh, there's a lot of focus on each individual and their part in the community. Um, how many likes and followers the, the individual is receiving as opposed to an organization receiving that kind of attention. So uh, socially, uh, morally, and uh, in, in Thelema, religiously, um, we believe the focal point has shifted into the third aeon being the aeon of the child, the aeon of the individual. And um, it, we call that the aeon of Horus. So there's uh, Isis, Osiris, and Horus. Isis being the mother, Osiris being her husband, the father, and Horus being the, uh, their child. And there's, uh, there's a lot of Egyptian themes throughout Thelema, as well as some other uh, themes. There's, you know, some Greek themes and some, some of its own themes and some biblical themes. And uh, you'll find that um, 
It's very varied in that way. But specifically when talking about the Aeons, it's generally themed a little bit more towards um, the patterns that exist in Egyptian mythology. Not to say that those patterns don't exist in other mythology as well. And that those Aeons take after, to some degree, um, the natural cycle of life. And, yeah, so that's that's what the concept of Aeons is. Alright, so another symbol, another concept that you'll run into a lot within Thelemite Circles is there's this uh, Egyptian tablet-looking thing. It's, uh, it's uh, an often orange and yellow painted, um, kind of the shape you might expect to see, like, I don't know, like a, almost like a tombstone, like those old cartoonish flat on bottom, rectangular and curved along the top kind of a shape. Um, yeah, painted with uh, Egyptian symbols. There's a couple Egyptian gods and a person on it. and Some uh, hieroglyphs and all of that. And uh, the tablet is a physical tablet that was uh, discovered um, at the time of it becoming a point of Thelemic interest. It was at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Um, it's called the. It's officially archaeologically called the Stele of Ankhaf Nakansu, or Ankhaf Unkansu. Uh, Egyptian's really weird in the way that sometimes some letters and the pronunciations can flip. So sometimes it's referred to as Af or Ankhaf Na, and sometimes Unkansu. So. Um, Basically, um, it depicts a couple of Egyptian gods and a person standing there in uh, what would be traditional Egyptian priest garb of the time period. Um, the reason why it's of import in Thelemic circles is the story that it plays into for the original writing of the Book of the Law, the... Uh, we talked a little bit already about the three days for the writing of the Book of the Law. We talked about the Supreme Ritual, Feast for the Supreme Ritual, um, and the uh, Feast for the Equinox of the Gods. So uh, this is kind of one of the objects that played into this story and led to the creation of Philema. And that's why it's held uh, in high regard. And it's a symbol that you'll see... Uh, in the mass, it's a symbol that you'll see just around some Thelemites' homes. They might have like a replica of it, or maybe a picture of it, those kind of things. And um, basically, the story, the way that it, that it goes, is that um, Rose Kelly uh, and Alistair Crowley, so Rose Kelly is Alistair Crowley's wife at that point in time, um, she had been asking some questions about uh, specific entity and they decided that the best way to really kind of answer those questions was to uh, perform what's called the bornless one right or the bornless one ritual and that was done as an invocation towards said specific entity in order to um, just show her as opposed to trying to describe and you know get stuck in some of that kind of stuff just hey yeah this is what it, that thing is and um the Thelemic view on this is that there, when this happened, when the rite was performed, there was something waiting on the other side 
um, it, its intention was to announce the law, um, set the stage for the next Aeon, and that that intelligence was um, aware that the rite was going to be performed, and that even though that wasn't what they were attempting to draw towards them, uh, since the door was open, the channel was, you know, since the radio was turned on, it was a great time to uh, make contact and uh, kind of help through this next set of the process, if that makes sense. So, um, basically, we talked a little bit about the specific dates that this played out. So, the Feast for the Prophet and His Bride is in August. That's when he uh, married Rose. Then uh, they had been married from August until March. March 20th is when they perform the Supreme Ritual. And the Equinox of the Gods is the beginning of the Spring Equinox, which would have been that day. Basically, they performed the rite, and Rose Kelly uh, slipped into a slight trance and said something along the lines of, uh, they're waiting for you, or something along those lines. And Crowley kind of took it with uh, a grain of salt. wasn't quite, you know, definitely in occult circles. We, we do find uh, a lot of people who hmm, like to put on airs um, for their own need of self-import. And so I'm not surprised that uh, in a lot of those types of circles, it is pretty normal for initial responses to extreme claims to be one of skepticism and um, double-checking, you know, if that's so, prove it. So definitely not surprised by that reaction. Um, his reaction was basically, okay, well, let's offer you an opportunity to prove it. And she basically said that Horace was had, had sent that message through. And uh, he knew that she didn't really know a whole lot of Egyptian deities and was uh, not well-versed on that. And he felt he was more versed on it. And so they uh, went to the Egyptian museum and went through. And he basically said, all right, find a depiction of Horus then. And um, I think this is an interesting test because there are a couple entities within Egyptian that look pretty close to Horus. And depending on what is on top. Of, so, I mean, I, th I think a lot of people, especially in a modern era, might know that he's a hawk-headed Egyptian deity. Um, but there's more to it than that when it comes to distinguishing one hawk-headed deity from another in Egyptian. A lot of it's going to fall down on the headdress and the um, maybe is there an item on top of his head and those kind of things. So uh, I think it's actually a better test than a lot of people would realize. I, I, I do know a lot of people because I'm a Thelemite who probably could spot the difference between Ra and Horus. But I will be honest, I don't know a lot of people that are outside of Thelema that are not like specifically educated in Egyptian mythology that would be able to identify the difference. And so that uh, was kind of his test of the situation is, uh, all right, I'll take her to the Egyptian museum since we're in Cairo anyway, and we will uh, see if she can spot out Horus, if she claims that, you know, Horus sent her this message. And um, sure enough, Horus, uh, it was depicted on the Stele of Revealing or the Stele of Ankaf Ankansu. And it was, um, it was, upon her pointing it out and saying it, it's that one. That's that's the one. 
um, that uh, Crowley noticed the uh, exhibit number on that particular exhibit was uh, 666. And um, Alistair Crowley had uh, personally identified with that number quite a bit, um, had claimed on multiple occasions that it was a solar number and that it's made of three sixes, six being a solar number, three being a sacred number. And then it's kind of a symbol of a sacred sun kind of thing. And um, basically had uh, some personal experiences from his childhood where uh, his mother had like called him the beast or whatever. And, and so in the teenage rebellious style that many um, find themselves in, myself included, um, he, uh, you know, fine then, I will, and self-associated with the concept of 666 and the Beast and um, had uh, for many years kind of run on some of that. Uh, and so he personally associating with the number, having that be the exhibit number, and that being the specific depiction of Horus out of the entire Egyptian museum in Cairo that she had selected, it kind of becomes this... Um, this focal point in his in his mind of like, no, no, really, uh, this is intent. This message is intended for specifically you, and that's kind of the way he took it. And uh, eventually, this leads to the writing of the Book of the Law. Um, so that's March twentieth that that is happening, and by. April 8th, they have formally intended to sit down, open the uh, open invitation for the message to come through, and according to Crowley, uh, there was some presence that entered and physically spoke, that he physically heard it speaking and dictated the Book of the Law. So that's kind of what the Stele of Revealing is. You'll see it uh, in a lot of Thelemic symbols, and that's the part that it plays in Thelema. So, um, we mentioned just now the Gnostic Mass. I suppose we should kind of talk a little bit about the Gnostic Mass as, um, oh, and Resh. We should probably talk about Resh. Those are both Thelemic practices. So, let's do that. Let's go into kind of some Thelemic practices. So, okay, that's those are some symbols 93, the Stellar Reeling, concept of the Aeon the law, the book of the law. Um, what about, what, is a, what does a Thelemite do? You know, what, what, is, uh, what does that look like? Well, first off, that would be up to the individual because Thelema is uh, individual-centric because we are in the Aeon of Horus. And um, that means it's kind of up to you what you do with your practice. You can definitely ask those around you, like, hey, what's been working for you, bud? But I have found in Thelemic circles that if you ask, what should I do? If you word the question as, what should I do? They will not give you a straight answer. Um, if you say, hey, wh what have you been doing? I'm, I'm kind of just like looking to see what some options are. That they might, you know, yeah, yeah, I read this and it interested me in that. And I, you know, went and looked at this other thing. So you'll find that uh, Thelemites are kind of carving their own path in a lot of ways. Uh, there's a lot of common material that's thrown around. But there's also... Uh, just individuals that are just curious about any kind of spiritual practice, spiritual culture that exists out there. And Philemon very much gives you kind of a, 
a passport to move independently throughout those different concepts as much as you choose. So um, it's really hard to pin down like Thelemic practices. There are a couple that are Thelemic in nature that are like, yeah, these are some things that were created for Thelema, but that is not to say that Thelemites don't often find themselves doing other things as well, or maybe not even doing these things. And this is just like a, a suggestion that, hey, if you're Thelemite, this is a, a decent practice to start. And, you know, you might find value in this. And if you don't, that's okay too. You know, go figure out what it is working for you, bud. And uh, that seems to be the general attitude about it. But um, one of the common practices is called resh. It comes, uh, the reason we call it resh is because it comes from, um, what is it, resh valhelios? Libra resh valhelios, I believe. And uh, resh is the, a solar adoration. So uh, the sun comes up in the east, boop, and that gives us one direction, one point to stand, staring. And uh, then in the northern hemisphere, at least, uh, when the sun is at its highest point, it is actually also at its southernmost point. Depending on what time of year you're at, it will be farther or closer to uh, the southern direction. Um, because during uh, the summer, there's a harsher angle than there is during the winter uh, on the path of the sun, the uh, ellipsis. So uh, that gives you uh, an eastern point, a southern point, and then it's kind of just expanded from there. As the sun sets, it is in the west, and then that leaves you one last direction at midnight hour. So you have uh, a solar cycle, right? Sun comes up, sun reaches its highest point, sun sets, sun is as far away from you as it is going to be. It is the darkest, you know, it's that midnight hour. Uh, so that's four different points in the day and four different directions. And basically there's a fourfold adoration to the sun during that period of time. And uh, some of the, uh, uh, sim the symbols that are used in it are drawn from the Stelle of Revealing. Um, there's a translation. <laughs> there's a translation of the Stella of Revealing that is in Libra Abba, and it is not a fantastic translation. Um, it, it has all the same ideas in it, all the same symbols, but it is not a word-for-word -word translation. It is definitely like someone took the theme of it, the idea of it, and then kind of transcribed it into English so that it kind of flowed in a poetic manner the way that you know, it flows in its original tongue. Whereas like a literal translation would be like, these words in this order. However, they don't sound as pretty because it wasn't written in this language. So uh, it's not a word-for-word -word translation. It's an uh, idea-for-idea translation. It's pretty accurate. Um, and uh, some of the symbols that are within that, the specific deities and those kind of things, are taken and used in Resh. And so uh, basically... As the sun rises in the morning, as it is at its highest point in noon, as it sets, and at the midnight hour, one would face that direction and say a solar adoration. It basically goes, uh, hail unto, so this would be the morning one. It would be, hail unto thee who art raw in thy rising, even unto thee who art raw in thy strength, who travelest over the heavens in thy bark at the morning hour of the sun. To hoodie standeth in thy splendor at thy prow, and raw horabideth at thy helm. Hail unto thee from the abodes of the night. 
And then there's some body postures that go into that. And then there's some other steps that kind of go into uh, basically uh, a solar adoration as you have been taught. And so that might be if you were a member of the AA um, or if you were uh, in some formal training of uh, magical instruction systems. Yeah. Um, there might be different ways that you might get taught and those might change as you progress from one degree to the next uh, those kind of things generally the uh, the most basic form of it that I see is either for people to leave it off entirely which is totally fine you know as you have been taught if you haven't been directly taught otherwise why not just leave it right there uh, or to take um, some of that translation from the Stelly of Revealing uh, there's a specific verse that shows up in the Book of the Law that states, um, let me think, Hail unto thee, Horton, the rise, and even to thee, Horton, the strength, the travel, over the hands of thy bark, the morning, or the sun, to hootie stand, thy splendor, thy proud, and raw, whereabout of the helm, hail unto thee. Ah, here it is. Unity uttermost shown, I adore the might of thy breath, supreme and terrible God, who makest the gods and death to tremble before thee. I, I adore thee. Appear upon the throne of Ra, open the ways of the Ku, lighten the ways of the Ka, the ways of the cobs run through me to stir me or still me. Um, let it fill me. Um, so that would be a example of what Resh might look like, and they would do that solar adoration slash prayer slash invocation, however you want to view that. Uh, you would do that first thing in the morning at the noon hour as the sun sets at the midnight hour just before bed and uh, then repeat as you wake up. Um, there's definitely a lot more layers to it and um, I, I would imagine there's probably enough on that topic that if there's interest we could dive into an episode and kind of look at some of the specifics. But very, very surface level. If you were surrounded by other Thelemites and somebody said, oh, hey, I'm going to go do Resh. And everybody looks at their watch and goes, oh, shit, I was having so much fun, I totally spaced it, but it totally is time for, you know, then you, generally it happens with uh, the, the sun setting one, because a lot of times you go to, a, like, a get-together, and then it's evening, and everyone's had a drink or two, and we're all having riveting conversations with our best friends, <laughs> and then uh, somebody recognizes that the sun set 20 minutes ago, <laughs> and we all huddle out in someone's backyard, and yeah, you know, it's just what it is, man, it's, it's part of it. You definitely see it a lot, too, if you go to, like, large-scale uh, thelemic conventions where there's a lot of people. That can be a pretty powerful experience to have, you know, hundreds of people in a room, and uh, all in unison doing a solar adoration together. It's pretty, pretty awesome. So uh, that's one thelemic practice. Another one is saying will. So will uh, saying will kind of takes the place of like uh, dinner prayer. Uh, I know a lot of religions have like a uh, prayer and uh, remembrance at the time just before you eat. Um, similar concept. It happens a lot more in households that are thelemic, and it happens a lot in... Uh, like if you go to a feast day and everyone's about to start eating, um, whether that's like, and often feast days are like a buffet style thing where like, we'll have a bunch of food or like a potluck kind of thing where there's a bunch of food on a table and maybe not everybody is set with a plate sitting around waiting to eat, you know, 
Uh, a lot of times it's just like, uh, hey, you know, eat as you will. Um, for obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, that just kind of seems to be the culture. I'm not surprised by that. It's a very free will oriented system. But uh, yeah, so basically we would just before opening up to eat, opening up the opportunity to eat, we would do what's called saying will. And will basically goes like this. There is some knocks. It goes three, five, three. So it would be one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three. Um, if you're doing it with claps, I think, I think this is something that just someone that happened to be a mason and also a thelemite started. Uh, there have been a lot of masons that are thelemites. It's not uncommon. Um, Crowley was a mason. Uh, several of my best friends are masons. They're good guys. Um, I myself am not one. But uh, it seems to be kind of a thing that they picked up from that community and has just helped to delineate how many knocks you are in. Or if you're doing claps, you clap with one hand on top, flip your hands, so the other hand is on top. Two, three, four, five. Flip your hands. One, two, three. So 11 claps, a battery of three, a battery of five, a battery of three. There's symbolisms in there. Um, you can get into it if you want. <laughs> So, the leader does that, and then says, Do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. Do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. It kind of shows up a lot. It's uh, a challenge and also a celebration of the fact that your will exists. So, you'll see it in the beginning of a lot of things, like formal letters, a lot of rituals. Uh, yeah, shows up a lot. It shows up in mass. First lines in mass is, Do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. I proclaim the uh, law of light, life, love, and liberty. Word of whose law is the lemma. So uh, you'll see it a lot. Do what the will should be the whole of the law being used, not just as the law itself, but worked into a lot of the limit concepts. So the leader goes, do what the will should be the whole of the law. And somebody responds, what is thy will? And he responds, it is my will to eat and to drink. To what end? That I might fortify my body thereby. To what end? That I might accomplish the great work. And then everyone responds, love is the law, love under will. And then... Uh, he knocks one time, or claps one time, depending if he's standing or sitting or whatever, sitting at a table. Uh, and then he says, fall to. And that's kind of the concept of saying will. Uh, I don't see it very often. Um, I see it a whole lot on feast days, because there's a whole bunch of Thelemites in one room. Um, I see it in Thelemic households, where everyone is a member that is within a household. But I know a lot of Thelemites who are partners or married or just living with people who are not Thelemites. It's pretty common. Like any walk of life, uh, it's common that, you know, we're surrounded by other types of people. And so I myself, I can really only speak on what I do in those situations where it's just me because saying will takes two people. Uh, I just kind of say it to myself silently uh, in my mind's eye before I eat. And I'll just say, okay, do what the will should be the whole of the law. What is thy will? It is my will to eat and drink. To what it? And it just, so just it doesn't necessarily require two people. You can go through the whole thing. And then I say, fall to, and I'll eat. Um, that's an option. Um, but you definitely see it actually physically performed on, uh, like, feast days when you get everybody together and, you know, digging through a bucket of fried chicken and enjoying a couple glasses of wine and, you know, talking shop, 
It's great. I love my family. <laughs> um, so that's the idea of saying will. We've mentioned like three times the Gnostic Mass, and I feel like you have to talk about the Gnostic Mass in a Thelemic intro episode, or else, I don't know, we've just missed a foundational and central point of the entire thing. There's a, there's a mass ritual, just like there's Catholic Mass, and they have like a formalized, scripted, here are the things that you do at Mass. It is a celebration of uh, something we consider to be sacred truths. I won't uh, get too into it, um, because number one, the whole ritual is out there, widely available. And if you're curious, you can always go on the internet. There's some fantastic filmed versions where um, certain bodies, temples, um, have decided to uh, actually film the practice in a theatrical sense uh, to kind of uh, allow individuals to take a look. So it's not filmed just like standing on the side and just like, okay, go. I'm just going to press play. You know, it's definitely, um, there's some camera editing and camera angles and stuff like that that makes it more uh, fun to watch, you know, more... Uh, immersive and experience so if you want to that's available for you uh it, also the script is out there you know if you type in the gnostic mass or what is it libra 15 i think xv yeah libra 15 um you could definitely find it that way um read through the script if you want to know it's uh, definitely not a secret basically it is our um, celebration of a specific set of sacred truths and acts as our central right. So, um, as we get together on, you know, worship days, you might see, I don't know, you might see Mass. Um, if an individual was a Thelemite and marrying another Thelemite or uh, their partner wanted to support them in that way, you might see marriage ceremonies done via Mass, where there's a Mass. and The Mass is a Eucharistic ritual, um, similar to the Catholic sacrament, where there is a uh, what we call a cake of light, which is a small, round... Um, Almost like a wafer, I guess. It's kind of like a kind of like a Catholic wafer. It's thicker. It's like a, it's more like a cookie. Um, definitely doesn't taste like a cookie. <laughs> Don't get excited. It's not a chocolate chip cookie or anything. But it's thicker than a wafer. Those wafers are like pieces of paper almost. Um, whereas this is more like a more like a the density thickness of a cookie. Um, and then uh, wine as the other part of the sacrament. Um, for individuals who are alcoholic, um, I'm an alcoholic that's in recovery and nobody will ever in the OTO make you do anything that you don't want to do. And so if you just say it's not, this is the magic words, this is the magic words to get out of absolutely anything. And if they keep pressing, then it's on them and they are, uh, being a piece of shit. <laughs> Uh, you just say, it's not my will to do blank, whatever the thing was. And then you just walk away. It's totally fine. Nobody gives a shit. Um, so like, uh, for example, I don't drink wine. I basically just said to, you know, the deacon at mass, Hey, it's not my will to drink wine. Okay. No questions are asked after that. 
there's no like, hey, why? Is it because you're an alcoholic? Do you, are you on a, some religious exemption? I mean, the reality is Thelemites play with so many different spiritual concepts that it's not uncommon for one of us to just randomly decide to be kosher or alcohol-free or vegetarian or, you know, anything just as we experiment with our own uh, spiritual system. And so sometimes we just assume, oh, okay, you're doing a thing. And also, you know, it's not like we don't have loved ones and friends who are uh, also struggling with alcohol and maybe, uh, you know, have to not do that. So let's say you're in my boat. You don't drink wine. You just be like, it's not my will to drink wine. Can we? Can I get a grape juice? And boom, nobody is going to say another fucking word. Um, I recognize that's probably the norm amongst most religious groups. There are some groups where sacrament is interpreted to be literal body of Christ and therefore cannot cause you to have an alcoholic relapse because that would be ridiculous. I don't know. I strongly disagree with uh, any group that is forcing you to ingest anything that uh, you personally might have an issue with. Everybody's body is very different. Everyone's mind is very different. And what is definitely damaging to me it might not be damaging for you. And so uh, it's not my place to judge. It's not my fucking will, you know. It's yours. Do what you're going to do. Um, but that being said, just know that exceptions can be made. Same thing with, like, allergies. It's none of our fucking business if you have an allergy. You could just say, hey, uh, I can't do your cakes of light because, you know, it's not my will to do that but I brought some for myself that are, that I made at home and people are happy to place your cake of light on the plate, set it off to the side, maybe mark it, you know, in a way that they know that that one is yours and not give it out for sacrament for anybody except for you. And so then when you get to the Eucharistic part where you would ingest your Eucharist, um, Eucharist just means like a ingested symbol. It's a, some form of religious symbol that you take in your body like, sacrament is a perfect example so that's why i keep using both those words um but we'll just set yours off to the side and then when it's your turn we'll give you yours uh people are pretty understanding of you know people's different practices it's kind of the point um so gnostic mass uh what else should we say about gnostic mass talked about eucharist food and alcoholic oh um I, I don't want to get too in-depth into what the Mass is because I feel like it has the potential for me to accidentally be interpreting the Mass for you. And especially in new Aeon concepts, it's really important for you to interpret things for your damn self because uh, it is about that. That's kind of the point, is that you are the individual and therefore it's up to you to interpret it. Um, it's not like we can't point you towards some great materials in order to read up on the topic, but if I were to say, here is what mass is, then this person does this, and here is why, and this is what that makes me feel, and then I would be interpreting it for you, and we might potentially have, I don't know, kind of some of the problems arise over time that happened to the, the Catholic Church, where, you know, one person was interpreting the book for others and could put their own spin on it, their own interpretation, and then control masses of people uh, via that uh, interpretation. So we try to avoid those kind of things. Um, 
but I can say it is centric around some basic concepts. There are some Kabbalistic ideas, some elemental ideas that are portrayed in the symbol. There is uh, some symbol with the specific characters. There's a high priestess, a high priest, and a deacon. And under certain circumstances, there are two individuals, depending on how many people we have to perform mass, of course, um, and who else trained in all that. There are individuals who we call the children, basically. Um, they're, they're usually, it's almost always performed by, I've never seen it performed by actual children. It's always adults. But they're symbolic of some stuff. Let's see, and I'm trying to avoid interpreting for you. Um, but there's there's always three, if not sometimes five, individuals who perform the Mass. Priest, priestess, deacon. That's the core three. And then sometimes the, the Office of Children gets thrown in there and they uh, will act as they do. Um, there are some Kabbalistic and elemental symbols. Uh, the priestess actually goes kind of in the Mass to describe what some of them are. She might say like, oh yeah, this is the water and it's symbolic of this. So uh, some of them are kind of painted out for you. Some of them are kind of symbols laid on symbols laid on symbols. The mass itself um, is for myself a pretty powerful experience. I think that every time I go in there, I bring my own mind, my own interpretation, my own whatever the fuck's going on in my life into it. And uh, every time that changes and drastically alters the message, and it's a very living, breathing experience that feels unique each time. And, um, you know, I, I, every time I come out of Mass, I, I come out with something meaningful for myself. Um, by no means does anybody force you to expand on what that meaning might be for you. You know, if you want to just show up, kind of observe... Maybe it's your 500th mass. Maybe it's your first mass. It's all good. And uh, I remember one time I had a uh, a friend kind of, you know, oh, hey, how was that one for you? And I was, wow, it was really intensely powerful. I really took something meaningful that I didn't notice the last time. And they were like, oh, really? What was that? Um, I don't want to get into it. Oh, okay, cool. And we just kept going on with our conversation. I mean, um, again, with Thelemites, you'll find that's... Look, if it's not your will to speak about something, it's none of our damn business. We're not gonna, we're not gonna pry it out of you. You know, uh, it's kind of the point. <laughs> so um, I will say, uh, I won't say. Yeah, I'm gonna leave it for people to discover on their own. Uh, generally speaking, I will say this. Generally speaking, mass is performed in an, in a scenario uh, that is uh, 18 and up. There are of course, exceptions. This is a religious organization. Uh, and so um, sometimes people might decide to uh, bring the kids in or whatever. Um, I think a lot of that goes into uh, strange territory because there are some adult concepts and themes within Mass uh, that... We hope um, when an individual comes and sees Mass that they see it from a uh, from a point of mm, reverence, you know? Be, uh, 
be open to the idea that you're just viewing somebody's perception of divinity and some celebration of some sacred truth and definitely don't um i don't know take it in a rude fashion but uh you'll see um rituals out there for anybody that wants to read it let's see we talked about gnostic mass saying will and resh any other massive thelemic practice there's so many there's no way for me to summarize everything um I would say those are kind of the basics that are Thelemic in nature, but remember that many, many, many Thelemites are heavily influenced by other organizations and other spiritual beliefs. And so you will frequently see ones that are practicing Golden Dawn magic. You will frequently see ones that are practicing alchemy. You will frequently see ones that are practicing all sorts of different stuff. And it is... Um, you're not required by any means to uh, come into the situation having already any experience with any of that kind of stuff, but don't be surprised when you find, you know, that you, like many of us, are interested in some of those kind of things. It's pretty normal. Um, oh, I suppose if we talk about Gnostic Mass, we talk about organizations, we should probably talk about the EGC. So there's an organization called the Ecclesia Gnostica Catholica. It is uh, literally translated as a Gnostic Catholic Church. And that is an organization that exists within the OTO, or the Ordo Temple Orientis. Uh, OTO acts as like a fraternal organization uh, for Thelemites. Similar to how you might think of like the Masons, where it's kind of, um, I don't know, an initiatory group of people that are all united in this thing. By no means do you have to be in the OTO to be a Thelemite, and by no means do you have to be a Thelemite to be in the OTO, to some extent. Uh, one of the... Uh, is it a recommendation or is it a requirement? I don't know. I think it's a requirement that you must have read the Book of the Law. And we would hope that the reason why you have approached the OTO in order to initiate is that you accepted the Book of the Law's truth. But I suppose, uh, you don't necessarily have to, I suppose you could uh, read the Book of the Law and not accept it. I don't know why you would want to be with us if you didn't. That would be weird. But I suppose you don't have to, you know. Um, yeah, I think there is a requirement that you... It might be the requirement that you have read and accepted the Book of the Law. I don't remember how it's worded exactly. Just to join the OTO. And then uh, within the OTO is a separate organization called the EGC, Ecclesia Gnostic Catholica. And they um, kind of act as like a church um, that um, regularly performs the clergic duties of the Thelemic um, traditions, including the central rite that is the Gnostic Mass. They might also do things like, I don't know, marriages, you know, the same way that you might go to a priest to get married in another religion. Um, funerals, you know, they might be requested to speak at a funeral if a Thelemite were to pass away. Um doing rites of passing, those kind of things. Um, just any kind of clergical... They're, they're the, the Thelema clergy, is basically what they are. Um, within the EGC, you there are formalized programs for individuals to learn and prepare for practicing public Gnostic Masses. If you, as a separate individual, whether you are a member of the OTO or not, 
whether you are a member of the EGC or not, if you as an individual would like to practice the Gnostic Mass unassociated with any organization, uh, there's not a lot of rules about that. I mean, how could we possibly, you know, enforce anything like that? It would be ridiculous. Do as you will. Um, if you are going to host a public mass as a an official event, there is some quality control. We want to make sure that you know the script, you know, that you have some basic understanding of symbols, and that you're not, I don't know, that you're not a piece of shit and trying to, like, hurt people or something, you know, that, you, uh, that you're that uh, you into it for spirit's purpose and growth and helping others and those kind of things. Same thing you would want with any kind of clergy. Um, so there's some quality control things that uh, exist and some programs to help you to uh, have some understanding of how to go about that. So if you were ever interested in, like, a magical tradition form of, like, priesthood and um, clerical... Um, paths that might potentially be an option um, yeah let's see oh I suppose as long as we talked about the OTO I guess we, we should dive more in depth into what the OTO is yeah so there's two Thelemic organizations and when I say two there's from fractures of two but there's two major uh, branches of Thelemic organizations. There is the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, and the AA. I think it's the Astro Gentum. What is the official translation of the AA? Let's see if that even comes up. Oh, no, I thought it was a website. I don't want to waste your time, so I'm not going to look it up. Um, basically, one is more of a fraternal organization for many groups, for many people to you know, uh, be surrounded by other Thelemites in a fraternal way. Uh, the OTO accepts men and women um, and performs the same initiation for men as it does for women. Um, there are many other fraternal organizations that do not do that still to this day. Um, I know the OTO itself's history goes back before Thelema, and one of the main reasons that it split off from uh, some of the other fraternal organizations that were in its area at its time was that we were initiating women, and that was kind of scandalous. It was like, how dare you? Uh, but long before uh, the OTO was had accepted the Thelemic current and had uh, altered itself to be a Thelemic organization, um, we have initiated men alongside women uh, with the exact same right. So... Um, it's not a separate ritual, and uh, I have been initiated to certain levels, not to all of them, but um, I have been initiated next to women before. It has happened where um, it's not just that they are initiated in the same ritual. They actually initiate right there with you because, let's face it, uh, women or people do deal with it. <laughs> um, let's see. So then the AA acts as more of an instructional organization where there's a set of materials for each grade that you take. Um, you would uh, study up on a specific set of materials and work through certain spiritual practices that um, have proven for many others to be effective. And uh, while you're doing that, you're receiving instruction from somebody else who, who has already gone through it. 
and then you are instructing someone who is going through what you just went through. So let's say, uh, so basically you would act for, as that person for, basically you know like three people in the organization. You would know the person in front of you that has just worked through the material that you're working through. You know yourself, you're working through this material. And you know someone who's working through the material that you just got through as you progressed to the stage that you're at. So uh, the AA is much less of a social function and much more of a here is a set of materials, study up on this, perform this practice on a regular basis. Um, there is something to be said about uh, the value of having someone who checks up on you on a regular basis and expects you to do ritual daily. There's uh, many of the people that I've talked to in the AA who have felt that it was a benefit, um, have expressed a similar gratitude towards the fact that it wasn't just that you were asked to do Rush every day. It's that somebody who just did Rush every day for a year in the same way that you're doing it has been checking up on you and being like, hey, did you do it? Did you do it? Did you do it? And uh, really, um, I don't know, keeping you keeping you involved in the process, keeping you accountable. That's the word I'm looking for. Keeping you accountable to the work that you have uh, said that you will do. So that's kind of what the AA is, and that's kind of what the OTO is. Uh, there are, um, the AEA itself has, uh, there are a couple of different organizations claiming to be the AA. With, um, the, if, if you dig into it, you'll find what is called the argument of lineages, which is basically like, you know, did so-and-so have the right to teach and overtake the uh, the AA after Crowley passed away? And, you know, so-and-so says he did and so-and-so says he didn't. They fought or whatever and had a splinter in the AA. Similar to how the Mormons had Joseph Smith as their prophet. And then when Joseph Smith died, the church split under whoever the second prophet was. So, um... Who is it's Brigham Young is one of them. I don't remember who the other guy is, but that's where you get the split between the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints and the fundamental fund fund. I don't remember what they call themselves. The fundamentalist. I can't remember what that second group is. The ones that practice polygamy. It's that one. <laughs> the ones that actively practice polygamy in the 21st century is the the other one. The fraction that I can't remember who their prophet was. Um, Similar concept. The AA, um, there is some argument as to which of them is valid. There are even some other ones that have popped up. So there's there's a couple major branches, and then there's some other ones that have popped up as, you know, this person or that person decided to spawn out of nowhere. There's some of that. Um, the OTO didn't have a... Hmm, there are multiple fractures of the OTO. Um, the the major organization that is the OTO in the United States and globally um, has tracked a successive line all the way back. But there was a brief period of time where some initiates had been initiated, but some interest had dropped off and there wasn't a physical lodge at the time. If that makes sense. And so there were some people that kind of, you know, were all initiates, but they uh, weren't actively practicing the OTO stuff. And then someone came along and was like, we should do this still. 
And they were like, yeah, we should. I miss it. And had kind of uh, revitalized it. Um, so it can be tracked all the way back through initiates. Um, I, as I understand, I don't know a whole lot about the AA, and I think a lot of that is just the um, the mystique that is, you know, an organization that you only know the person ahead of you and the person behind you. And as you can imagine, it's a it's a difficult system to have a proof of legitimacy claim in because in at least in the OTO where it's like a formalized organization uh, with many, many people and everyone knows everyone. And there's like a lot to be said about how that allows a history to be passed. Whereas like a history is much more difficult to pass. If you only know a couple of people, you only know the person that's teaching you and the person you're teaching. And you know, you're all kind of, I don't know, playing a giant game of telephone. It makes it complicated, I guess is my point. And so, um, I have personal opinions on, um, different lineages of the AA and I will keep them all to myself because, uh, I think at the end of the day, it's up to you. And, uh, I have met people in both lineages of the AA. Uh, I don't think I've ever met one person that's in both, but I know some people in one and I know some people in the other, as far as the major branches go. And I'm sure I probably know some people that are in some of the other smaller ones and they all seem to be doing pretty good and it seems to be benefiting them. So it would be really stupid for me to, uh, publicize my personal opinions which is nothing more than an opinion and just be like oh yeah well fuck that group because that group that you know it it's still pretty valid and uh it seems to be benefiting some people so i'm gonna encourage people to be benefited as opposed to tying my own ego into which lineage is the one true lineage of thelema you know what i mean it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to act like that so i will uh I will hold my opinions to myself. So that's the AA, the OTO. Um, let's see, the Illuminati. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it's hard to be in communities like the Masons or the AA or the OTO and not constantly joke about the Illuminati. Um, I have yet to meet the Illuminati. If they are real, I would assume that I would have run into them by now in some... I mean, I've just been running around the occult world from left to right, secret society this and all that, and I just... It, either I have run into them and they don't think I'm cool enough, <laughs> so I'm not going to be in the club, or they're not real. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we joke about it a lot because it's funny. It's super funny to us. <laughs> the idea that... Thelemites could uh, organize anything that coherent is hilarious to me because so many people's personal egos and personal decision-making process gets tied into Thelema because it's like a free will-based organization, right? It, sometimes it can be kind of hard because somebody will be like, oh, hey, I'm going to, you know, on Wednesday, I'm we're all going to go over to Steve's house. And then like three people don't show up and you call them. They're like, yeah, it wasn't my will to do that. I wanted to go do this other thing. And we're like, eh, well, we'll call the next person. So the idea that we would be organized enough to take over the world is uh, priceless. And, uh, yeah, it's a joke that you'll hear from time to time. <laughs> um, let's see. Thelemic entities is another bullet point that I wrote down on this list. That's probably a good talking point. So that's that kind of wraps up all of the organization's point, And we'll talk about Thelemic entities. Um, the Thelemic trinity i guess it's not really a tr there's three of them i don't know that i would consider it a trinity um 
we take a lot from, as I have said, some Greek, some biblical, some Egyptian. Um, so, so a lot of these are going to be either either cut and paste from one of those other systems where we're like, yep, that's the deity we're talking about. Or it's going to be pretty damn close and is just maybe our own spin on something in order to best illustrate a concept or idea. Um, maybe we took something and adapted it in order to be a more perfect symbol of how we view the divine. Uh, one time I was asked by somebody who uh, had been intending to find some Thelemites and online, and I had offered, said, hey, uh, you had a question. Uh, can, I, can I answer it for you? And if I don't know, I can maybe point you in a resource that might help you better. And uh, they, one of the questions that was posed during that conversation was, you know, um, yeah, I have noticed that uh, there's some Egyptian deities in this and some of them are wrong. And I was like, well, okay. Um, yeah, they're definitely not all copy-paste exact replicas of whatever the other system was. Uh, sometimes we'll take something that is the closest and best understanding that we had at the time archaeologically when Thelema was founded, so that might be a potential. Um, during that time period, they were kind of at the at the back end of the peak of interest in Egyptian discovery. There was a lot of archaeological evidence coming out at the time, and it had just peaked interest, and it was starting to kind of mellow out a little bit when uh, a lot of Thelema was written. And so some of that just has to do with, you know, the fascination in Europe with it. But also, uh, you know, we didn't have a whole... We didn't have as much of an understanding of Egyptian concepts at the time. Same with Greek. A lot of Greek was lost for a period of time, and we've since discovered much of it in uh, archaeological discoveries. So some of that might be something like that. And then as Thelemites... Um, started to explore certain symbols, ideas, descriptions. We found that this worked really well for our symbols to uh, describe things in this way, but that um, maybe it wasn't exact. Another thing is that uh, sometimes we find that um, something's pretty close, and we can use it and adapt it in a way that is closer to what we find to be true. So... Um, his question was basically like, are you guys just arrogantly saying that you have it right? No, not at all. We're definitely not arrogantly saying that, you know, this is how you actually, actually pr pronounce this word that archaeologically existed. No, definitely not. Um, a lot of times we're, we have our own slight spin on the word because it's a slight spin on the concept. And so you find some of that. Um, the Trinity, oh, man, I don't like the word Trinity. There's three central gods. One's a goddess. Three central deities. There you go. Um, in Thelema. That kind of act as the godhead. And then there's some other ones that show up in other symbols and other systems. So uh, there's Nuit, Hadit, and Rahurquit. So Nuit is the star goddess. She's a uh, blue body, uh, night sky makes up her body. She's got like stars, galaxies, whatever. She's like the night sky. If if you picture if you go outside and it's like a nice clear night and you just like look up at the sky, uh, that's like Nuit in Egyptian mythology. She was 
bending over, and that was her body kind of caressing the earth. And um, so she's a common symbol in in uh, Thelema. Uh, Hadith, another Egyptian symbol, is uh, that solar disk with the big wings on it. Um, I think in Egyptian it's Had instead of Hadith. I'm not sure. Um, and then Rahurquit. Um, in Egyptian, a lot of times they'll have one god that is an amalgamation of multiple gods. Yeah, Rahurquit is an Egyptian amalgamation that they often used. This is not our own spin on it. Uh, this is they they regularly mixed their gods together um, and distilled them out into separate things. That pretty common. Um, so they had Ra, Horus, and Quiti. So Ra, Hor, Quiti would be Ra, Hor, Quit um, in the Thalamic spectrum. So it's kind of Ra and Horus <laughs> and Quiti. Yep. It, it's a complicated thing, but uh, it's that one entity, Rahurquit. Um, they kind of act as your central three. You're going to see them on the Stellar Revealing. You're going to see them... Are all three on the Stellar? Yeah, they are all on the Stellar. Um, all three of them are on the Stellar. Um, I think all three... Oh, definitely all three of them are in uh, the Book of the Law. So when we talk about the different chapters of the Book of the Law... Um, Nuit writing the first chapter, Hadid writing the second chapter, and Rahurquit writing the third chapter. Um, some other deities that show up that are from Egyptian are the ones that are in Resh. In Resh, in the morning, you would hail Ra. At noon, you would hail Ahathor, um, which is Hathor, the Egyptian deity Hathor. Same concept. Uh, Hathor. Um, in the evening, it's Tum, and uh, in Egyptian that would be Atum, or Atum, um, or which is the same or highly related symbol of Atum Ra. A lot of people have heard of Atum Ra. That's just Tum and Ra mixed together. Egyptians like to mix stuff together. Uh, and then at midnight, uh, uh, Kefra, or Kefra, depending on how you want to pronounce that. I think they were originally pronouncing it Khafra. Uh, and in English, in the 21st century, we don't really do a lot of kh. <laughs> so uh, we just say Kefra. <laughs> Kefra is that stag beetle that's rolling the sun. It's like the, the dung beetle rolling the, the spherical object that is the sun. Um, so Ra, Kefra, Hathor, or Ahathor. Hathor is the... Um, uh, the bull deity, the Egyptian, the Egyptian cow deity, when Moses comes off the hill with the Ten Commandments written down on the, on the stone tablets, and he comes down for the first time, and he's just left, he's like, I'm going to go up on this, on this sacred mountain, I'm going to talk to God, and he's going to tell me what to do now that we've taken everyone out of Egypt, and we're going to go do our own thing again. But we've been in Egypt for so long, we don't really remember how to do that on a religious level. So I'm going to go up. God's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to come back down. He comes back down with the tablets, and they're all dancing around a golden calf. The golden calf is is uh, Hathor. 
what's happening in this point in the Bible, and I, no Christian has ever told me this. I don't know why this is skipped. But what has happened is they have taken the gods of Egypt out of Egypt with them. And he comes back down and he's like, God just told me what to do. And these fucking idiots are worshipping Hathor. These bastards I don't deserve this. And he smashes the tablets. And then he feels bad about it and he goes. And I don't remember if he just has more tablets. If he had like three and he smashed one out of anger. And so now there's two of the three. Or if he goes back and gets them redictated. I don't remember. And it might be that I don't remember because it was told to me multiple different ways depending on which uh, Sunday school I was going to at the time. Um, but that's that's what has happened. That's Hathor showing up in the Bible. Um, so in, in Thilema, it's Ahathor. Um, Horparkrat is another one. And Horparkrat is interesting because Horparkrat is not an Egyptian deity and it is not a Greek deity. It's both. It's it's interesting. It's the it's one of the few gods that is shared both amongst the ancient Greeks and the ancient Egyptians. Now, during this time period that we're talking about, um, kind of that time period of Cleopatra and uh, Mark Antony and uh, Caesar, that that time period, um, Greece. And Egypt are regularly trading resources. They're sending politicians to each other. They're trading information, and by the end of that period, they are, they have a kind of a joint rulership happening, where they're uh, kind of joined as partner empires, and uh, it leads into the period where I think it's Greece rules over Rome, or I'm sorry, Rome. Rome rules over, I think it's Rome rules over Egypt, not the other way around. But um, it kind of puts into perspective, like the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, their whole uh, set of deities are, their cultures are starting to mesh with the Egyptians at the same time period. And um, basically, uh, Horparkarat is one of the deities that is shared amongst both religions um, in Greek and Roman, he is um, Horpokrates, and in uh, Egyptian, he's Horpokrat. So uh, you'll see this uh, image used quite a bit in uh, Thelema. Uh, you also see him in Golden Dawn Magic, and he's uh, well. If you if you want to Google Horpokrat or Hippocrates is probably better. Um, you'll probably uh, find some depictions of him with his finger on his mouth as if he's like saying shh um, yeah that's a deity that shows up in uh, the Thelemic circle um, and I personally think that a lot of that is because we've been um, positively influenced by the Golden Dawn that some of our interests were their interests as well um, let's see. Man, I just keep hitting that, don't I? I feel bad. It's probably a clicking in the microphone. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> um, so these two are more in line with, these are Thelemic entities that are more in line with some of the biblical concept. Um, Thelemites kind of take the book of Revelations in a slightly different way. 
that it's kind of the end of that aeon, and that um, it's very symbolic of the destruction of that system and the entering of the new aeon, and that it's not necessarily symbolic of like a literal destruction of the earth, apocalyptic, everyone's dying and shooting each other over a can of tuna or anything like that, but much more in a here is the symbolic end of this system and the symbolic beginning of the next. And so there are some symbols that are um, taken from the book of Revelations uh, to describe some of our system. Um, one is Babylon, um, probably best known as the whore Babylon in uh, Revelations. Um, she is kind of this feminism, powerful woman, almost similar to Kali in the Hindu concept. Uh, she's she's a, a female empowerment goddess, a symbol of female sexuality and female empowerment and uh, the spiritual liberty of womankind. She's taken in that kind of an aspect. There are some slight destroyer vibes going on with her representation. Uh, also similar to how Kali in um, Hindu has like a goblet of blood. Um, Babylon has a goblet of blood. So even some of the symbols that she carries are similar uh, to that to that Kali aspect. And uh, that is also represented in the book of Revelations, the blood of the saints. And um, some of those symbols uh, get utilized in a lot of writing as well as uh, some ritual, uh, which if you dive into some of the specifics, I'm sure you'll find references to Babylon and the blood of the saints and uh, her cup and... Um, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of that, but think of her as man. It's complicated to not put my own interpretation in this. Um, she's an empowerment, she's a female empowerment, the the divine symbol of woman, everything that woman is on a deep spiritual level. So that would include fertility and that would include power and emotion and um, you know she's also kind of tied into this concept of inflama of like mother earth she's she's almost like the mother earth vibe character um her male counterpart is therion or tomega therion or uh it's the, the greek for beast um so for example in um in the book of revelations babylon rides the beast similar concept therion Babylon. Um, same concept, opposite. Uh, so male, all, everything that ba that I just described for Babylon being this like empowerment and this uh, divine um, symbol of the feminine energies. Same thing, divine empowered symbol of the male energies, um, and the symbol of the beast. So. Um, that kind of gives you an idea of Therion and Babylon. There's a lot more information on both of those two. And I strongly suggest that people uh, don't just take my word for it. <laughs> but actually, uh, you know, do some reading. See if you agree with any of it. If you don't, 
I totally get it. Um, because they are symbols that are taken from the book of Revelations, I find a lot of people get uncomfortable with them for one of two reasons. Either one, it is originally inspired by Judaic uh, Judeo-Christian concepts, and a lot of people have a chip on their shoulder about uh, Judeo-Christian concepts. And so, you know, having been like, I don't know, offended by that group, they might like try to stay away from anything that remotely resembles it. I can understand where you're coming from. Um, I have come, kind of come around and I try to treat every symbol as some symbol of the divine. But you, you do you, man. You do it however you're going to do it. I, uh, I support you. Um, so some people reject it for that reason. Some people reject it for the opposite, where they um, are worried that it is dark in its nature, that it is... Um, so some people reject it because they hate the idea of validating Christianity, and some people uh, hate it because they already validate Christianity, and therefore they feel as if it is a symbol of dark origin. I have found in my personal dealings that it is not. However, you are welcome to come up with your own interpretations, and man has the right to speak as he will. So, uh, if you choose to voice those opinions, I will not attempt to stop you. <laughs> um, so I've seen it rejected for both of those reasons. Um, personally, I have found a lot of depth and empowerment and spiritual growth in both of those symbols, and it has helped me a lot. Um, another Thelemic entity is Iwas. We talked about receiving the Book of the Law. Um, Crowley throughout his life and specifically in the instance of receiving the book of the law um, mentioned a an entity, a being um, outside of himself sometimes he identified as being his holy guardian angel and other times he um, wrote that it was a facet of his own being um, personified um, but regardless of which step he was in the process the entity was Iwas, and uh, Iwas is the herald of the Thelemic Aeon, I guess. It's kind of a character that gets used in Thelema as the... Um, if Thelema had a trumpeter to announce that mourning had begun, that would be the Iwas character. He's the herald of the new Aeon, and acted as personal um, inspiration and guidance for Crowley. That's who Iwas is. Um, one of the, the, the... A lot of these have been either biblical or Egyptian, although, of course, Hippocrat being uh, both Greek and Egyptian. There are also some Greek concepts. Um, one of them is uh, the concept of chaos, being an embodiment of the great void through which, you know, the father of all things, the, the void through which all things become. Um, in Greek was chaos. And uh, there's a lot of information about that. Um, in a modern day, we usually use the word chaos to mean death and destruction. Uh, the Greek concept of chaos is definitely not death and destruction. Uh, and I would strongly suggest that if you're trying to understand Thelemic concepts, that it might be of benefit. 
if it be your will, to uh, read a little bit more on the Greek concept of chaos. Maybe that'll um, shed some light on the difference. But it's kind of like this uh, father concept. Yeah. Okay, so that was a whole ton of information. We are at two and a half hours of a podcast, and I do not even feel like I have breached the surface of this topic. Um, Philema has a ton of books that were, most of them, written directly by Aleister Crowley, and uh, many of them written by people who were heavily influenced by him personally. Um, so there is a insane library that you could build if you were to just collect all of Crowley's books that delves very heavy on the topic. Um, that being said, the number one question that I ever hear online is, where the hell do I start? And so I wanted this episode to lay out a framework for, hey, here's some symbols and ideas and like buzzwords that you know you could know a little bit more about where uh, if somebody like if you're in a conversation with a thelemite and they've been in it for 20 years and uh here you are you're walking in on day one you have no idea what they're talking about now when they say oh yeah i, I did an invocation just after resh that invoked babylon and um i was just impressed the next time that i went to gnostic mass on some of those symbols and how that had kind of affected me and i'm really excited uh, to see everybody on the first day of the writing of the Book of the Law. <laughs> uh, if you were to play that sentence before listening to this and having no background in Thelema, it would sound like nonsense. You'd have no framework to be able to attach any of those ideas to. But now, you know, maybe, depending on how much you paid attention to the episode, maybe you've got an idea now. Maybe all of that made sense. Maybe it was a whole sentence. Awesome. So that laid a framework for having these kind of conversations. And then... Uh, where do you actually start? Where do you go next? So um, I can't decide for you what you should read, but I can say some books that and give a little bit of a description that I think uh, if someone was directly asking me, hey, what books were helpful for you in the beginning? Um, maybe this would be a benefit of somebody. That's what I can say. So if it, if it be your will to read these books, great. I think they're a good starting point. So is any other starting point. I mean, really, do you're you're better off just doing something than doing nothing. So if you're trying to understand Thelema, pick up anything, start reading that, feel completely lost and blown away, and then you know pick up another one to try to explain some of what you just read, and eventually you'll find yourself swimming in the deep end of the pool with more information and more of a framework. Um, I know that seems to be the experience for a lot of people, is that. Crowley's writing can be very, very dense and have a lot of layers of uh, Kabbalistic meaning and and symbols that might be confusing. And, and he might write a footnote in there like, duh, you know, of course this number equals 16, which is related to geometric... Okay, like I get, and it's complicated and frustrating. And uh, don't feel like if you pick up one of these books and you start reading it, at any starting point, whether it's the ones that I'm about to suggest or others that you're like inherently not set out for Thelema because a lot of us felt like that on day one and found the more that we understood, the more we were uh, impressed with the depth of information. Um, but that that starting point is pretty complicated. So 
Here's some starting books. Here's some ideas. Uh, read them as you will. One of them is called uh, Thelema. It's a book called Thelema. It's written by Colin D. Campbell. And I... It is a modern book, and I cannot recommend it enough for people who are just getting in uh, on day one. What is Thelema? What is this thing? Fantastic book. Written very much for the layman to kind of try to explain as simply as possible. What the hell is a Thelemite? Who the fuck is Aleister Crowley? What are these fucking things these people are doing when they say Resh? And, uh, you know, just trying to explain the culture. Um, I would even go as far as to say that the book Thelema does a fantastic job to explain the philosophy and culture in a way where you don't necessarily have to be a member of the culture to appreciate the book because it is just, uh, hey, here's what these people are doing. This is why. It's a fantastic little primer, and a, a lot of times I suggest that as a starting point, even though it's not an old canonical religious text. The way that, like... Um, if you went to, like, Barnes & Noble and you bought, like, An Idiot's Guide to the Bible, <laughs> you know? And it uh, just is super simple and makes sense, but you've never, like, read the Bible before, and so it's great to have it laid out so simply, you know? And then that, you know, even though it's not canonical Christianity, it's still, like, an old valuable book that helps kind of open that door. That's kind of the place that I think Thelema takes, is that, uh, that super broke-down, simple, surface-layer, this is what Thelemites believe, Awesome. Fantastic text. I'm not sure if Colin is alive or not. I haven't ever really looked into his personal history. I would imagine, based on the age of the book, that he is still alive. Let's see. He's been teaching, practice, 25 years. Everything on this book seems to be modern. First printing, 2018. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say Colin is still alive. Colin, if you are listening... Uh, I read your book. It is fantastic. And I strongly appreciate, personally, the work that you put into that book. Uh, I, I think it's very valuable. And uh, I would love to add a signed copy to my collection. If you are listening, please reach out to me at nate at whitewoodpodcast.com. And we'll try to set something like that up. And uh, potentially even bring you on the show and let you talk about your ideas. I think that would be fantastic to uh, offer that platform out. So, that's a really good starting point. Obviously, another one is the Book of the Law. It's not very long. It's about three chapters long. You can find it for free on the internet. Thelemites try to um, make sure that that's the case. So, I see it on a whole bunch of different websites. I see it uh, in some apps. Uh, it's very widely available. Obviously, when you start printing something onto physical material, there is a cost incurred with that. And so, if you want like a physical copy for your collection, I know I have a couple, um, you will find that you do have to pay for those, uh, but you're much more paying for the uh, paper and the uh, you know ink more than the book itself. So uh, do not feel like if you found an online version that we're upset for any kind of a copyright reason, we do try to make that available. And uh, as I understand, I have been I have been told by those who know those who I, I haven't had the direct conversation, but I've been told by many who are in the know about the copyrights that uh, we're not going after anybody over the book of the law because we want it to be out there so long as it's not altered, edited, or changed in any way. Um, it has been translated into many languages, and there are official canonical translations, as well as, before we started uh, setting up some 
formal translations, some approved translations. Uh, there were some other versions poking around, and uh, my personal library has a couple of those. Just as cool uh, collector's pieces, I really love the history of all this kind of stuff, so it's been pretty cool to be able to collect that kind of stuff. But uh, Book of the Law, fantastic. It um, is the book that was received by Alistair Crowley uh, over those days in April. April 10th, 11th, or I'm sorry, 8th, 9th, 10th. Um, Lieber Oz, fantastic starting point. I read it in the episode. Uh, it's a single page long, and I love using it when people go, what the fuck is Thelema? And I'm like, here you go. This is it. Because it uh, it's an official um, document written by Crowley declaring man's rights, and it does a damn good job at, in a single page, trying to uh, explain the concept of Thelemic liberty, spiritual liberty, um, to everybody. It makes a lot of sense to people. And so, because it's in such plain text, I definitely suggest that as a starting point. And one thing that you can do, uh, if it be your will, is uh, you can kind of uh, notice that there are some things that are in the Book of the Law that are quoted directly in Libro or Libras, and you can um, uh, cross-reference and kind of read those chapters and kind of you know get the vibe for all that kind of stuff, um, if that be something that you're interested in doing. Um, I should mention the Book of the Law. I should take it back step really quick. I should mention with the Book of the Law, generally it, it is considered in bad taste for me to interpret it for you. However, um, Crowley did write a commentary on it. So if you find yourself struggling with some of the ideas, symbols, uh, you're like, what the fuck is this Hebrew letter doing in the middle of this chapter here? I don't know what that is. Um, don't feel uh, disenfranchised and frustrated. Uh, go take a look at that, and uh, hopefully that can shed a little light on it for you. Um, another book that I think is very valuable for uh, beginners and really retouch on all of these books later um, they do a fantastic job at over time becoming more in-depth as you understand more and you're like oh I never noticed that it said that in such obvious way I guess I wasn't aware of that symbol um, but another good one is Noxum Pox um, Noxum Pox has several smaller short stories in it each written in its own style with its own symbolism and uh, each kind of unified in a an idea of um, some of the Thelemic concept of the divine. So uh, definitely a, a great one. Uh, original copy. Ooh, this is a good time to say this. Okay, so there's this thing that has happened with Thelema where many books are out of print. And if you go try on Amazon to find one of these books, you will find yourself... Uh, face-to-face -face with a $500 copy of a book. And what has happened is you have searched for this particular book and you have clicked on um, the original print that someone has in their private collection and is willing to sell to collectors. And it's in a certain amount of, you know, people's collection. It's like a limited number of these things. Um, Knox and Pox is no... Uh, exception to this. There are copies of it that are out there for I'm sure $500 is not a crazy uh, number for... Uh, also, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, 
what do you call it? What do you call it? An appraiser. I'm not a book appraiser, so don't take this as an appraisal. Um, but, um, yeah, there's expensive copies out there. And uh, don't be blown away when you see that and think, well, these gosh darn Thelemites are trying to sell me religion for $500 a pop. No, that's a collector's item that you're looking at. Uh, go try to find a reprint. There are reproductions of all of these books. So Nox and Pox, the first copy of Nox and Pox that I ever saw, I think was $600. If I, if my memory serves, uh, it could be wrong. Uh, maybe I was just really broke. It was like 50 bucks. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it was a really expensive original copy. Um, it was one of the first printings of it and it was in prime condition and it was, it had made its way to Portland and it was sitting in a bookshop and I did not buy it. And as I understand that copy was bought by somebody at some point, um, then my copy of Knox and Pox is a reproduction that has all of the same words in it and nothing has been edited and it cost me like 20 bucks and uh, it's a nice hardbound edition and I'm happy to have it in my collection. So um, this is true for not just this, but some other things. Uh, the Holy Book of uh, Books of Thelema is uh, another great reading book that you might take a look at. I know it's a major point of contention on the internet. Gosh darn these damn OTO Thelemites. They are trying to sell me a book for, you know, 300 bucks or something that I really need for my research. It's out there. Um, it is, I, my copy was $25. There are reproductions that are going out. And uh, no one is upset about the copyrights of them because we are trying to make sure that they're out there. Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting that you go ahead and print them. I don't own the copyrights. I don't have the ability to give you any permissions like that. But uh, you might, if you were intending to make copies, you could uh, potentially seek out those individuals and come to some terms. And as I understand, they are not, they're not highly offended when people come with those ideas because they also want those books to exist and be out there. So uh, both of those, Knox and Pox, Holy Books of Lama, wildly available for cheap. Don't be surprised when you see an overly expensive one. Don't feel offended. Um, Holy Books of Thelema is interesting. It's a set of shorter books. You know how the Bible is made up of like one book that's made up of the book of John, the book of Mark, the book of... You know what I'm saying? There's like a lot of books inside of one book. Uh, that's Holy Books of Thelema is similar. Uh, there are some separate sections and each one of them has their own uh, overall thing. Um, as... as uh, as I understand, uh, Crowley wrote them um, where the Book of the Law was reported to be directly heard, that there was like a voice in the corner of the room telling him what to write down. The Holy Books of Thelema was more of an inspired situation where he was sitting in reflection soon after having wrote the Book of the Law, and he was expanding the idea that was the Thelemic current and that the uh, writing was in inspired works um, that uh, would have some inspired elements, but that it wasn't like a voice in the corner of the room telling him what words to write down. Okay, so um, fantastic read. A little more on the dense side, and I would probably not put it in my beginner's list. If I was to say, hey, read these books to start, um, I don't know that I would put it in there, but I would put it immediately afterwards. It would be the first book that I wouldn't put in this list. If that makes sense. Um, yeah. Um, a popular one that is a starting point. It was my starting point, actually. Uh, was the Book of Lies. Um, the official title 
is the Book of Lies, which is also falsely called Breaks, the Wandering or Falsifications of One Thought of Frater Proterabo, Alistair Crowley, which thought is itself untrue, a reprint with additional commentary to each chapter. Um, I found this at a, I don't know, some used bookshop. It was not overly expensive. I think I paid $4 for it. And uh, I was aware of who Crowley was, not the caliber of his work. I had no idea how in-depth this was going to be. Um, it's a book of poems. Uh, each one is roughly about a page long, and uh, some of them shorter than others, and just kind of a small poem that goes over a specific idea or theme, some symbol. There are two rituals that are within it. There is the star ruby and the star sapphire, uh, which kind of take the Thelemic place. Hmm, that's a weird word for it. It doesn't take the place of, because a lot of Thelemites still practice LBRP. But uh, star ruby is basically the Thelemic version of LBRP, and star sapphire is the Thelemic version of um, LBRH. So that's the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, lesser banishing ritual of the hexagram. I suppose it could be the invoking forms as well. So it's the lesser ritual of the pentagram, lesser ritual of the hexagram uh, that are Golden Dawn work. Um, many, many, many uh, Thelemites also practice the actual lesser ritual of the hexagram and pentagram. It's not to say that um, that everybody that's a Thelemite exclusively practices Star Ruby and Star Sapphire. Um both of those rituals, uh, Star Ruby and Sapphire, are in the Book of Lies, but for the most part, it is poems. And then on one page, you will have a poem, and on the next page, you'll have a commentary from Crowley as he explains some of the symbols that are within that, and some of them are pretty straightforward, where he'll be like, yeah, this swan is a symbol of this, duh. And then in some of them, he will go just balls to the wall, oh, the number of this chapter is this number, and if you divide that by this, you you can see that it's broken into these kind of things, and it talks about this symbol, and if you spell that symbol in Hebrew, then you get this letter. And So there's, uh, it's an interesting book, because on one level, it can just be poetic and interesting and a good read, and on another level, it can be mind-blowingly deep as you're trying to fully grasp some of the commentary, and I have never, to this day, been able to grasp all of it. Um... Each time I read it, I grasp a little bit more. And I think it's a fantastic read. So, if you like poetry, maybe Book of Lies might be a potential. We've talked a little bit about Kabbalistic systems, symbols, um, gemetria. We've talked about uh, quite a bit of those kind of things. And many of those come from a book called 777 and Other Kabbalistic Writings by Aleister Crowley, which was published by Israel Regardi. Um, 777 has a section in it that is just charts and it is it it's basically if you were to take the Kabbalistic tree of life and associate each sphere with a number and each path with a number take each one of those paths and associate those with letters of the Hebrew and Greek alphabet and then those same paths and associate them with the planets the horoscopes the elements those kind of things, uh, and then start expanding on each one of those ideas, both the, the 10 spheres and the 22 paths of the Tree of Life, um, which is a uh, Jewish mysticis, uh, mysticism practice, 
where they would take their language, break it down. Uh, same with gematria. Uh, it's a Jewish practice. Um, and they would interpret the symbols that are below the surface of the word based on the components of the word. Um, in Thelemic Kabbalah and in Golden Dawn Kabbalah, um, we take it a couple steps farther and associate all of the planets, horoscopes, elements, a whole bunch of other different symbols, animals, plants, perfumes, colors, which types of things you might use one for and which types of things you might use another for. And so it's kind of a, uh, a chart of associations on a very intense, deep level. And I find that when you first open it up, it's overwhelming how many things are in there. And it can be kind of hard to uh, get, a, get a grip on. Um, I would strongly suggest memorizing a couple of key tables that are in there. And that then it'll make a lot more sense. It's a lot more useful. I would say memorize the tree itself. So the shape, where the spheres are, where the paths are, be able to draw it from memory, and which number on the tables those things are. Um, I would say where the horoscopes, planetary energies, and elemental energies are on those paths. And um, it kind of expand on some of the simple ones from there. I would say that's a pretty good starting point. And then then it'll make a lot of sense because you'll be like, you'll be like, oh, okay, I kind of have like a little bit of a vibe for what Venus energy is like. Um, what kind of a, a bird, what kind of an animal would be uh, Venus energy. Well, I mean, I guess I would probably guess dove. And then you can open it up and look in the animal and be like, oh, yeah, it is dove. I am starting to understand that type of an energy and the symbols that are, you know, tying into that. And so uh, you'll find uh, that there is, that when you first open it up, it is very complex, depth, uh, dense, and in-depth. But that as you start to memorize some of it, you will find that there is a system to it. And that it is, um, we have not just randomly taken things and thrown it at the wall and see what's stuck, that it is very much there is a form and practice to the tables in 777. They can be comprehended and even expanded on in your own personal work if you would like. Um, so the book also, 777 also goes over Gemetria, which is taking a word, breaking it down uh, for the numerical uh, we talked about a little bit for 93 as we were talking about. That's a Gemetric value. So, like, how Thelema and Agape are related, um, that would be something you might look... There's also some other forms of Gemetria that are talked about in 777, where you might take, like, a sentence or a chapter, and you might take, like, the first letter off of each word in the sentence. Um, or the way you might uh, do some numeric equations on, you know, so there's some other systems in there as well that are Gemetric in nature. Um... So that's what 777 is. It also has a couple of essays that are just about certain concepts. So, like, for example, I think there's there's an essay on different elements and stuff like that. A uh, couple pages and might be worth just kind of getting a grasp of. Um, another book, if, you, if you're liking that whole 777 route and you're looking at, like, the practical how-do-you-do-magic side of Thelema, if you're wanting to see, like, what Crowley wrote as, like, a yeah, yeah, okay, it's great to have philosophy, and it's great to have, like, spiritual texts where you can, like, look at it as a form of scripture, and it's great to have poetry. I'm all about that kind of stuff, and, you know, maybe even, you know, you're into some of the short stories that exist in some of the other forms. I, 
but maybe you want like a technical manual. How do you do this? What rituals should you start with? What practices? How do you meditate? How do you, you know, how do you do this stuff? Um, there's a book sometimes referred to as the Big Blue Brick. Um, book four, it's Libra Abba. It is a big, thick book that has just about everything in it. It has the Book of the Law in it. It has several of his other writings that are more philosophical. Uh, it has several of his writings that are um, more like uh, magic and theory and practices in there. Um, there's descriptions of like the symbols that are the altar, the symbols that are the sacrificial knife, the symbols that are the wand, you know. So there's like some uh, technical explanations of symbols that are in there. There's some fantastic writing on meditation, a couple different forms of yoga, um, some breathing techniques, some, uh, not the Gnostic mass is in there. Um, so if you wanted to, if you were looking for like, uh, it's almost like Crowley's grimoire in that it's this huge technical manual of all things magic from his perspective when he wrote it. Now, uh, one frustration that some people have had is that it's not super great if you've never done magic because there is sometimes an assumption that you already know some basic Golden Dawn stuff or some basic, I don't know, certain symbols. Um, there is sometimes a, an, an expectation in his writing in that way uh, where he might not go into super long depth about what a specific symbol is the same way that you might if you like opened up like I don't know if you went to like Barnes and Noble and found Wicca one on one and you like opened it up to the chapter that says fire and you like read that you might have uh, I don't know you might have more luck with some of the entry level stuff but uh, as far as Thelemic magic goes and Crowley's interpretation of magic it is a fantastic book that goes over everything from Lesser Ritual of the Pentagram, to Philosophical Writings, to the Gnostic Mass, to just all sorts of stuff is in there. So, fantastic if you're looking at the actual, I want to start doing this stuff, show me, how does this work? That's the book you're looking for. It's not overly expensive. Um, it's not super cheap either. Uh, it, it is a very thick book. It is hardbound, usually. I don't think I've ever seen a paperback version. It's hardbound, big blue, hardbound copy. And uh, it uh, usually runs about 50 bucks. But figure if you were to chop it down to the size of like a regular $20 book, there's probably three of them in it, if not four. I would not be blown away if I'm underestimating how many pages there really are on that thing either. Um, so I think part of that is material cost to create it. I would assume it's got to be a major factor there. It's a big book. Um, I find myself frequently using it as reference material. And I have never read it cover to cover because it is, I don't know, it's almost like someone wrote an encyclopedia at a college level on magic. It's fantastic. I find myself going into the notes section and being like, oh, I'm reading about this one topic. What did Crowley write about that? Oh, hey, it is in Libraba. Let's go to page 536. You know, I find myself doing that a lot. Um, 
So Librava, fantastic technical manual. There is a set of books called the Equinox. They were released as periodicals right around the beginning. Was it 1905? Give me two seconds. The last one was, what, 1913? What was the first one? First one, 1909. So from 1909 until 1913, Crowley was releasing a series of periodicals it was the official, what he called the official organ of the AA. On the front they have a seal and it says, The Method of Science, the Aim of Religion. And basically it was kind of what you would expect from like a, almost like a, it was like a mix of a book and a magazine. If you can imagine someone writing a periodical magazine that has like, Hey, check this out. Here's an article on this but that it was done more book style, hardbound, um, thicker material. Um, but that it's like each Equinox is not necessarily one single book. It's like, well, let's take a look at the first one. I have one of them on my desk. This is another one that's out of print, but you can find reproductions for pretty cheap. Um, so for example, Libra Libra is in there. The Wizard Way by Aleister Crowley, Magic Glasses by Frank Harris, The Lonely Bride by Victor Newberg. So various authors writing different books on different things. And then sometimes there would be part one in this periodical. And then the next episode of the Equinox would include part two. So for example, there's a book called The Temple of Solomon the King. And book one of Temple of Solomon the King is in episode one, or I'm sorry, volume one, number one. And volume one, number two has part two in volume one, number three. So it's various volumes. There are 10 in volume one. And that's the span of time from 1909 to 1913. Um, there are some other volumes as well. And uh, I think that in order to understand Thelemic philosophy and the work of the AA, and just some general writings that uh, Crowley considered to be important towards uh, drawing attention towards the AA as they were founding it and trying to draw attention towards it. Um, it does a fantastic job at kind of painting the philosophy that is in the Thelemic Current. So that is what the equinoxes are. You'll find them referenced pretty frequently where someone will say like, oh, hey... Have you read, I don't know, The Herb Dangerous? Is that what it's? The Herb Dangerous is what it's called, right? Hang on. I guess this doesn't matter. This isn't really an important fucking detail, and I can't get to the table of contents, so. But someone might say, have you read The Hunchback and the Soldier? Um, and it was first printed in the Equinox. What uh, a lot of times has happened is, some of the ones that were chopped into multiple sections have been joined up into one single book and offered online in a PDF or in uh, on like sacredtext.com, those kind of things. Um, hermetic, what is the hermetic one? There's a, there's a hermetic, hermetica, maybe? There's a lot of, hermetic library, that's what it is. Um, there's a lot of online databases that have some of these books available for you if you were 
interested. There is also a book list that is maintained by... Okay, so those are all the starting books that I would suggest. Colin Campbell's Thelema, probably the best starting spot. The Book of the Law, obviously, if you're going to read anything related to Thelema. It's three chapters long and is our central text. It makes sense to read that. Liberaz is your Declaration of Lights, or Rights. Knox and Pox is a couple of short stories that have some highly symbolic and interesting writing in there. Book of Lies is the Book of Poems, all of which have um, some symbolisms in them, um, which are explained in the commentaries. 777 and other Kabbalistic writings is the Book of Associations. Libra Abba is a technical manual of magic, and the Equinox is a periodical of many books that all are made up of a bunch of different writings. Um, yeah, that's a good starting spot. Um, if you find yourself interested after some of that starting spot, some other options might be that the uh, the AA on their website has a list of books that they suggest, and every single one of them is available on their website in PDF form, so you don't have to technically buy them if you don't want to. Let's say you're uh, in a situation where you're not trying to collect up a physical library, um, or maybe uh, you don't have the money for it. Not a problem. Uh, a lot of books are on there. Some of the things in their reading list are some of the things that I have suggested here. For example, the Equinox is some of their suggested reading list. So um, check out their website. They have those available for you. Uh, so that's two different sets of books that I think are pretty valuable for a starting spot. Um, if you are interested in becoming a Thelemite, I would say that my interpretation of it has always been that if you are living by the law of Thelema, regardless of whether you are aware of the law of Philema or not, that you're already a Thelemite. Uh, if you so feel that uh, you have to accept that you are a Thelemite before and you are finding yourself recognizing that that is something that you associate as, welcome. We're all very happy for you. <laughs> We're excited to see uh, where this takes you. I hope that it's as beneficial for you as it has been for me. Um, there are things that the EGC offers as a there is a baptism and there is a confirmation the baptism is uh, usually performed before a Gnostic Mass so if you find a body that is actively practicing official public Gnostic Masses um, and you were to approach them and say hey I would like to be uh, I would like to receive a Thelemic baptism there is a ritual um, that happens before uh, a mass and then a confirmation uh, is kind of a second thing um, similar to how Catholics baptize and then also confirm at a later date sometimes if you live far enough away from a physical location uh, it has been done before I know it was done for me where I lived far enough away at the time that they were comfortable doing my baptism and confirmation in the same day. Um, there's no rush. You don't have to. I would really suggest kind of taking them individually, and uh, that way you kind of have, um, I don't know, an opportunity to inspect them individually. Um, 
The Thelemic baptism is performed as a ritual to welcome one into the Thelemic community. We do not believe in any kind of concept of sin or original sin or renunciation of sins. So the Thelemic baptism is not to cleanse one of sin, but instead to welcome one on the journey that is their uh, welcoming into the Thelemic community. Um, confirmation is to confirm into the Thelemic community. And um, both of those are available to you through the EGC. And um, I found them meaningful for myself. So, um, Let's see. Any other major points for Thelema? I suppose I will close with this. It's a, a celebration and a challenge. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. Thanks for listening to the Whitewood Podcast. This show is made possible by our Patreon members. You can find us on Twitter at Whitewood Show and on Facebook at Whitewood Podcast. For links to all our social media and information about our Patreon, visit us at whitewoodpodcast.com.